Hey everybody, welcome back to a brand new episode of Mike Adelic. I'm Mike Brancatelli. Thanks for being here. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to the show. Thank you for all your love and support. Much appreciated. Thanks for leaving reviews and ratings on Apple Podcasts. That really helps boost the show up in the algorithms. The algorithms. The algorithms. That's what we're going to be talking about today. As I got my my friend Bill Burns on the show to do a little sort of uh, good cinema-esque uh, discussion of the documentary The Social Dilemma. Uh, Bill Burns is the the founder, creator of Good Cinema. And uh, you guys have heard him before on past podcasts, the most recent one called The Chrysalis and one before that last year. Uh, so so we, we both watch The Social Dilemma. We have some different takes on it and we explore that through the podcast for about the first hour and 20 minutes we're just kind of, uh, you know, riffing on what we saw and about the documentary. The, the second portion of the podcast, we dive into the PDF document that I'll put a link in the show notes description for uh, what we were looking at. It's the Social Dilemma Discussion and Action Guide, a discussion and action guide prompts to dive deeper into the dilemmas featured in the film and suggested pathways to engage different audiences in action. And we get through uh, most of the questions here in the PDF document. So as you know, longtime listeners know, Mike Adelic, this is a show that explores reality, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm not just interested in psychedelics. I'm interested in the, the, the realities that we construct, how we get along with each other on individual, interpersonal level, and how we also congregate into groups, group think mentality, and how we relate to institutions, belief systems, consciousness, the evolution of consciousness, um, and just asking those big metaphysical questions. Who are we? Why are we here? What are we doing? And, and you know, what are some ways that we can start to enact real change in the world to uh, live better lives, more happier, free, peaceful, uh, and, and, uh, you know, with, with respect to everybody and the, the, the planet, the environment and all the beings that inhabit it. So yeah, that's what the podcast is about. Okay. Before we get into the show, I want to announce the brand new sponsor for Mycadelic. I'm really, really happy about this sponsor because as you guys know, I don't really go out and seek sponsorships unless there's something that I really, really love and um, I want to tell people about it. You know, I don't want to be one of these podcasts that just reads ads for stamps.com or something like that because who the fuck, you know, I don't know, who the, who, who's mailing shit? I, don't, I really don't understand that. But, but anyway, uh, Sheath Underwear came to my attention and um, they sent me a couple pairs. Thank you so much, Sheath. For, for sending me those pairs that I could try on and wear. And let me tell you, they are awesome. I am like, I'm just blown away. I'm fucking blown away. I had, I'm, I think underwear, as a guy with big thighs and, you know, uh, things and in, in other things in that, in that domain, uh, it, it's difficult down there sometimes. You know, if you don't have the right pair of underwear, it can just ruin your day. Yeah, like remember those old pairs of underwear that you would get? I don't know. My parents would get like these, you know, it's, oh, it's cheaper to get the 12 pack and it's like made of cardboard and, and sandpaper. They're like just the worst. But anyway, today's episode is brought to you by Sheath Underwear. Sheath makes the softest, most comfortable boxer briefs uh, that I've ever worn. 
I, I, and I'm not a big boxer brief guy. I'm usually a boxer guy, but it's really hard to find a good pair. And then they're really expensive and you know, they, they don't last. I had a problem with this one company where they're, they're these expensive boxers and they, they said they were going to last. They didn't last. But anyway, sheath is, is just the best. It's like super, super comfortable. I, I wish I knew the materials that it was made out of. I, I guess I could probably check, pause this, but whatever. It's just, it's, it's, it's ridiculously comfortable. It's like silk. It, it's, it's so comfortable and they're, they're just the perfect fit. So here's what makes sheath unique. The stretchy fabric is made out of moisture wicking technology. Like I said, it feels silky and keeps everything cool, comfortable, and in its place. That's the, the thing that makes it unique too. It's the perfect underwear for working out, for hiking, for biking, for cycling, for, I guess biking is cycling, I guess, for, or riding a motorcycle. Uh, the unique thing about them is that they have these pouches. They're, uh, there's, the pouches basically keep things separated down there which prevents from sticking and chafing and sweating and the, the, the whole mess that could occur when you don't have a good pair of boxers or boxer briefs that holds everything into place. So it's, it's just, it's a game changer for working out or it really, it's just a game changer for wearing them. I mean, if you're the kind of, per, if you're like me, you know, I remember this old Louis C.K. joke where he was talking about like, it's just a nightmare down there. It's like a pig's ass. Everything's squished together and, and red and sticky. And it's like, thank God it's not like that extreme for me. But man, hopefully he was being hyperbolic with that. Uh, but it, it can, it's just it's, it's crazy down there sometimes. So you, you, you put your balls in a pouch and then you put your dick in a hole and it separates the two, and it separates your balls from your thighs. It separates your dick from your balls, and you 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 use like this little flap to to go to the bathroom. It's amazing. It's it's the it's like the best thing that uh, it's the best thing since sliced bread, folks. It really is a game changer. I thought I never thought like how could they make underwear better. I th- I just thought like oh the materials or things like that. I had no idea this pouch thing is blowing my mind. And I was joking with my cousin. I sent him a, a picture of, of it. I was like, dude, these are awesome. I was like, they have pouches. I was explaining it to him. And then I was like, you know, I was like, they, they also have a separate pouch for your farts so they don't have to spread. And <laughs> now we're getting, maybe that's because I'm reading Dune and they have those suits that filter the water and everything inside. But that, that's, yeah. Maybe some future innovation to think about, Sheath. Fart pouches, you know? Um, but anyway, Use the code Mikeadelic. Uh, go to sheathunderwear.com, okay? Sheathunderwear.com. That's S-H-E-A-T-H, underwear.com, and use the code Mikeadelic for 20% off site-wide. Sheath underwear is the most comfortable underwear you'll ever own. I, I really, really highly, uh, b- you know, believe that. And uh, one more thing, the... Uh, the founder of Sheath Underwear has his own podcast. He's a podcast fan. He loves podcasts. I was on his podcast. It's called Robert Patton Global. Go check that out. Go listen to that episode. I was on that podcast. But just this is just, a, I'm really, 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 really happy uh, to, to be working with Sheath to have this awesome pair of underwear where I can do all kinds of things. I, I'll tell you, I, I went and played disc golf recently. I think my score went up because I was wearing Sheath. I'm not kidding. I wasn't like, adjusting, you know, reaching down and, and adjusting. I wasn't getting that like 
ass sweat that makes it. It wasn't like riding up into my crap. I know this is going to, this is like getting, I apologize, but we all go through it. We all go through these issues. We all go through these problems. And I believe they also make underwear for women too. Um, so, you know, you could wear it with the pouch or without, I know it kind of sounds a little weird if you haven't tried the pouch. That's why I was a little skeptical. And then they sent me the pairs and I put them on, I wore them and I was like, this is, this is revolutionary. This is like, this is next to like the, the telegraph, the invention of electricity. This is like, this is next level shit. And their designs are really cool. I love the designs. Just a great company, great people get the underwear, support Mikeadelic. The great thing about sponsors is that if it's something that I really love, Hopefully you guys are going to love it too. And then you get something cool at a discounted price and then I get a little kickback. So you get something and then you support the podcast in return. You, you know how sponsorships work. But anyway, sheathunderwear.com, code Mikeadelic, M-I-K-E-A-D-E-L-I-C for 20% off site-wide. Okay, uh, big shout out to studentloantutor.com. Go to studentloantutor.com. If you have student debt, they can possibly help you schedule a free consultation. These guys have helped me. Let me just tell you, being like totally transparent here, they took a $55,000 loan that I had and got it down to $5,000. They're helping me repair my credit. They're helping me with all sorts of things. They have a team of people that go in there and perform surgery. They're like debt shamans. They're wizards. They know how to create the space in between the, the, the legalese and the trickery that all of these companies engage in. And they play like they play chess with it. And they get, you know, they they can articulate it better than me. But they work magic. Zach Geist of the Zeitgeist podcast. I'm gonna have him back on again. And he's just a brilliant person. He's a sort of a, a student of, of Charles Eisenstein and his philosophy of things and operates in the spirit of the gift and, and my gift to him. They gave me such a tremendous gift, and I hope to give you guys a gift. I'm not getting anything out of this other than helping people. Uh, they helped me, and now I want to spread that help to you guys. So uh, just go to their website, studentloantutor.com, schedule a free consultation. If you have student loan debt, just it, talk to them. You know, uh, I know it's weird. It sounds like one of those kind of scammy things where it's like, do you have debt? Do you, you know, 0% APR financing, good credit, bad credit, no problem. It's like, it's not one of those things. Zach is a cool dude. He's a psychedelic dude. He runs ecstatic dances. He has a sanctuary out in Hawaii. He's, he's a student of the Eisensteinian ways. He operates in the spirit of the gift, and he's just a brilliant mind, uh, and he's been obsessed with you know on this mission. You could listen to the podcast that we did together last year where he tells his story of being you know coming up from from poverty and, and sort of making money and then having like a spiritual crisis and then and then wanting to give back and help to people. So studentloantutor.com, schedule a free consultation, say that you heard about it from Mike Adelic, Mike Brancatelli. And that's it. That's it for, for the sponsors and for the people that I, that I love and I want to talk about and encourage other people to go check out. And thank you. Shout out. Big, 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 big shout out to, I love all of my Patreon supporters. I love you guys so much. Big shout out to Eric. Big shout out to Derek. Big shout out to Danny. Big shout out to, shit out. <laughs> big shout out to all of you beautiful, wonderful people. Natasha. Um, 
and then people that have names that aren't actual names, but they're their usernames. Sylvat Tika Collective. I just work here, uh, and more people who have left ratings and reviews. So if you want to become a member of the Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash Mike Brank. I put out bonus episodes there. Um, I am currently trying to figure out a, a cool design for a shirt. I want a cool shirt. Maybe I'm being too obsessive and perfectionist about this, but I want a comfortable shirt. I want a cool shirt. So I'm working on that. I got stickers, holographic stickers, more things. You get access to the private Mycadelic Inner Sanctum Discord chat where people from all around the world are connecting and sharing all kinds of ideas and stories and trip reports and those kinds of things. It's an awesome group of people. Uh, and big, big shout out just to all the people. If you've ever supported the podcast, just I love you with all my heart. I really do. I, I, I couldn't do what I do if I didn't have other people out there that were telling me that they liked it and that they were leaving you know, five-star ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and becoming patron members, Patreon members. So much love. Thank you all. Without further ado, Bill Burns and I are going to break down the social dilemma and get into some questions provided by the directors and the filmmakers towards the end. Enjoy. Psychedelics are illegal, not because a loving government is concerned that you may jump out of a third-story window. Psychedelics are illegal because they dissolve opinion structures and culturally laid down models of behavior and information processing. They open to us the possibility that everything we know is wrong. We don't need new laws that control our consciousness and rigidly place it in a prison. Cognitive liberty. The fact that as adults, if we're not hurting anybody else, we should have the right to explore the contours of our own consciousness without any mediation or legislation on the part of somebody else. Reject authority. Authority is a lie. Where is the perception? Information is power. But we have to seize, seize the opportunity. The opportunity. The opportunity. Hey everybody, I'm here with Bill Burns. You might know him from the podcast that we've done together in the past, as well as uh, the Good Cinema events put on, and, and a fitting topic to discuss a documentary with the founder of Good Cinema, my good friend Bill Burns. Bill, welcome back to Mike Delic, and thanks for uh, wanting to talk about The Social Dilemma. Is it is it like a hot documentary right now? Is this like... Is it, I, f- I haven't felt like the same sort of energy that I felt sometimes where people are like, you have to watch Tiger King. Like that was the big trending thing early in the pandemic. Have you heard a lot of people like, oh, you got to watch The Social Dilemma? I know you and I have talked about it. Yeah, I mean, in my circles, probably. But overall, no, it's not like this awesome sensational thing. It's, it's very introspective and eye-opening in a way that I think makes people very hesitant to want to talk about it because it brings up things that involve change and we resist that yeah i i have actually heard a few people say that they watched the social dilemma and that they were scared that they they were like oh my god i'm after watching the social dilemma i'm so scared right now like i'm so i have so much anxiety and you know i'm so nervous for 
what's going to happen and the election and the future and all this yeah. stuff. I mean, it's interesting because I watched uh, The Great Hack probably a month or two before that. And I know that came out a couple years ago, but that was really about kind of Cambridge Analytica and how they used social media to uh, to basically change people's opinions and behaviors. And so the social dilemma kind of got deeper into that, into how um, that is the purpose of um, of a lot of these platforms. They were created to make profit. And so they, they use these forms of manipulation. Now it went beyond just the political way, but also in advertising. And, and it's the bizarre, not bizarre, but I guess the really kind of eye-opening part to me was where it kind of showed you the breadcrumbs, where if you click on something because you're interested in that, then you see ads pop up everywhere about that. And then you click on another one and it takes you kind of deeper in this hole. And when it comes to the social ads that show up when and where, uh, really the big theme in the film and kind of the dramatization that they put in it um, starts to show how the the way that people are manipulated is based on their own initial thought and then it just takes them down 10 layers deeper and and that's the scary part where we start to question is this real is this is this thing that i'm into genuine is it authentic to me or is it something that i've been manipulated into yeah i mean it 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 begs the question of like free will autonomy uh and what is real what is reality you know so much of our lives now are are in the virtual space that the separation between like the real world and the internet world seems to be dwindling a lot. So it's, you know, uh, it it is weird, but it's, you know, I think one of the things that the, the documentary does is that it shows a lot of people that, Hey, this is what's going on. But like, I've already known about this. Like I've, I've known about this since 2015, you know, 2014, when I was like, I was working in the industry, I was working with analytics, I was working with data manipulation to like target certain people and, and, and advertise to them. And so I, I suppose that to, to me, it's like, yeah, it's not much of a surprise. But I think to, to most people, I think the big reveal here is like, hey, this is what's going on. And people are like shocked. They can't believe this is what's happening. Yeah. So I want to ask you a question about that. So when you were in the industry then, uh, because again, they were talking about this being the purpose of these platforms is to make money and they do that through advertising and, you know, manipulating opinion. And so when you were working for an advertiser, uh, within social media, was there any discussion around, uh, ethics or no, no. Okay. So, so if there There was the only discussion about ethics was, can we get away with this? Like, do we need to get the lawyers involved? Do, are we, you know, what do we need to do to circumvent the electronic borders and boundaries so that we can insert our advertisements into places that maybe they shouldn't be? Yeah. You know, there, there's things called um, uh, black hat marketing and white hat marketing. So it's like black hat has... Uh, basically the white hat is like the front facing image that says like, Hey, here's a story about Natalie Portman. And you're, it's on the front page of Yahoo, which was, was the, one of the main advertisers that we were working with at the time was Yahoo. And, uh, you know, so you'd be like, Oh, here's a story about Natalie Portman. So you'd click on that. And then through a series of redirects and like encrypted, you know, IPs and things like this, that uh, it would take you to the Black Hat site, which would be the story about Natalie Portman, but then also our advertisements baked in it. And then on the bottom, you know, you, you 
where I think most people see like, oh, these are the clickbaits at the bottom of the website where it's like, you know, find out this interesting tool to help remove acne. Like, you know, find out about this new law in New Jersey where you live or something like that. And a lot of people who don't know anything about the Internet and aren't familiar with Internet culture, mostly older people. Um, will click on these things or believe these things to be true and then purchase these products that we wanted them to purchase. So it's like a digital form of like publisher's clearinghouse. It's this illusion of something that isn't really there to try to pull as much money out of the subject as possible. Sure, yeah. And and we started that way and then we eventually moved to like, you know, more above ground you know, mainstream, like keeping it within the legal framework of things and doing it on Facebook and doing it on Instagram. And with that, it's like, you're still using the persuasive manipulative tactics. You're still manipulating the data. Like we'd be able to be like, okay, who's buying this product? Well, you know, the founder of my company would say, we never, we never lose. We either win or we pay for information. So we'd, we'd spend $120,000 on a two week campaign for skincare cream and get no results, but we would be sending it out, all these ads on Facebook and Instagram, but we would then analyze the data of who clicked, how much time they watched, heat sensors on the on the web page to see where their mouse was circling over, how much time they spent, uh, where they go next, uh, what they buy, what their location is, sex, gender, interests. All these things are called, um, I believe they're called psychographics. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so you, you use all this stuff and Facebook has them. You can build these audiences and then you can build audiences that are called lookalike audiences that basically duplicate the audience that you have built that looks like that audience. So it could find more people. And, um, and yeah, we were selling things that were just like, I don't know, skincare cream, like diabetes, you know, uh, information or something but all stuff that you would see on like television that would be like those infomercials call now act now you know where most of them are probably garbage maybe one percent or so or less than one percent probably is something worthwhile but yeah it was never and when you're making i was making like twenty two thousand dollars a month and it was like when you're making that much money you're you're just like all right, whatever. I don't know. You're not really, I wasn't really thinking about it until I had like a come to to Jesus moment where I was like, this is not right. Like, I don't want to be doing this. Yeah. So there's, I guess there's a couple things that come up. One is, I guess the, the moral side of, you know, is that right? But I guess before we get into that, um, if you're watching an infomercial, you can easily tell, you know, is this rotisserie oven? Is this body by Jake thing? Is that right for me? Eh, nah, I don't need any of that shit. But if you are, online and something is directly targeted towards what your specific interests are, of course you think you need it. And so I guess that opens up this thought of, or question of, um, if you're, if you're getting all these things to you that are speaking to you and are, you know, quote you based on exactly how you act and everything, um, couldn't that be good? Is could that be a good thing if if you're being having things targeted to you? Yeah, that, that reminds me. That reminds me of uh, of the Simpsons. I remember when um, I think it was in the Simpsons where it was, uh, or no, maybe it was in Rick and Morty where he's like, "Oh, what do you do, Jerry?" He's like, oh, "I'm in advertising," and he's like, "Oh, so people need help choosing what products and services to get for themselves, and you help them figure that out." And he's like, "Yeah, that's right." And it's like, "Yeah," and it's like. 
genuine and pure form, it sounds like it could be helpful. Just like with capitalism, you know, in capitalism in its purest free market form sounds like it's something that makes sense. It's like, well, you have goods and services and I have goods and services and I don't need your goods and services and you don't need mine. But, you know, we do, you know, we do want to make an exchange for some other goods and services and you're like an intermediary between that. So I trade with you and then you trade with the third party and then the third party trades with you and then back to me. And in, in, instead of trading the physical goods and services and products, we exchange the medium of money. It's like, hey, that sounds like it makes sense. Yeah, I, I think capitalism is more like a fire festival where the idea of it is much better than the thing in practice. Um, because when we see capitalism take hold of so many things, whether it's pillaging the planet, other humans, or in this case, this digital world, it becomes something that um, it's it's by any means necessary to get to the end of just more money. And, and the collateral damage doesn't really matter. And we never take that into effect in this form of unfettered capitalism that our society uh, exists upon. And that then brings in the question of, of freedom. We don't seem to have the freedom to uh, live in a world where we always have clean air or water. We don't have the freedom to have sovereignty over our bodies, and we don't have the freedom uh, anymore to find completely, you know, quote, true information um, or the freedom to go online and not become a product uh, for other companies to feast upon. Yeah, totally. I agree with you. And I think that there's also something to be said about the fact that we can't always cast ourselves as victims. You know, like I, I understand the predatory nature of a lot of these things, but also, also these concepts, these ideologies, if you want to call them that, the ideology of capitalism, the ideology of technology, like they birth out of the consciousness that we inhabit at the current time and the time that, that predated us. And a lot of this is focused in an individualistic, egoic sort of external materialization of um you know, tangible sort of measurable things, right? So the accumulation of money, the accumulation of resources, the accumulation of knowledge or things or products or services. And a lot of these advertisements and products and services, and even these news sites, fake news and all this kind of stuff, like they rely on our attention and our energy uh, to, to give to them so that we can then in exchange feel some kind of semblance of meaning and purpose in our lives, you know, to like fill some kind of void or hole that we're searching for. So really what, what, what it comes down to, it's like, and this is the problem that I have with the social dilemma. The problem I have with the social dilemma is that their solution is government regulation. And it's like, well, well, no, we can't, we can't conceive of any system. What did Einstein say? You can't solve a problem with the same level of consciousness that created it. And we've created so many problems. We can't just, we can't impose rules, laws, and regulations because those rules, laws, and regulations only act as an obstacle course for the, the elites that have the, the, the power and the wealth to hire teams of lawyers and spend money to get around them. 
Yeah, I mean, and when we look at, quote, government regulations, they all seem to be cherry-picked anyway. I mean, we have regulations for the way oil wells should be run, but when we saw what happened with Deepwater Horizon, does it even matter? I mean, at a certain point, it's just lip service. Right. To me, what I got out of the film, um, sure, I think that might have been one of the overall theses of the film, but many of the uh, contributors that were interviewed in the film, their answer was delete it. Free yourself by breaking the chains that connect you to this digital you know, world where you are preyed upon. And, you know, they were talking about how if it's free, you become the product. Totally. A deeper level is the changes that are made in your thoughts and behavior becomes the product. And that's the scary part. But to your point, if we take ownership, we can free ourselves by getting off of it. And shit, I'm like 75 days in of uh, no Facebook. And great. I I feel I feel wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that message. Uh, I'm I'm all for more humane technology. I'm more for um, I'm all for like, Get, giving people a, a sense of empowerment to make choices and decisions in their lives. And, you know, um, I think that that limiting the exposure to these things is 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 definitely like a, a way to go for sure. Um, there was something else I was going to say there and I completely forgot what it was. Let me jump back into uh, yeah. when we were talking about the capitalism piece. Uh, when I was, I was, I was trying to like look for a deeper root cause to all this. And the root cause that I see is kind of the same root cause I see to many things like the war on drugs and, um, all of the industrial complexes, whether it be military, pharmaceutical, prison, et cetera. Uh, it's, it's this form of capitalism that we have that only focuses on the amount of money that can be hoarded and built and, and pulled from and extracted from literally everything Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and not the collateral damage that occurs. And, and I think it begs the question in just another aspect of our lives for us to look deeper and say, is there another form of capitalism that could serve us that has to do with our contribution to society versus what we extract from it and contribution to the environment, to these things that provide real life and not the things that suck it out of us. Uh, because the more that all we focus on is as the more that all we focus on is money, what we're going to keep running into is us deteriorating ourselves and all life around us. Yeah. But people are forced to play the game of survival within the capitalist system, within the crony capitalist system, really, because I like to call it crony capitalism rather than just capitalism. And and some people will refer, refer to it as like late stage capitalism. You'll, you'll, you'll hear like neoliberalism and, and these kinds of things as like being a toxic you know thing in the environment. Uh, or a system that's sort of run its course, but I like to call it crony because it's a capitalist system that is enforced and uh, by the state uh, and its Federal Reserve, central banks, and the printing of of its promissory notes, its fiat currency that has no backing, that's just this imaginary thing, uh, and 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 because the powers that be the the state actors that rely on force and coercion and, and operate in a monopoly of, of violence are able to have uh, people that don't protest that system and instead uh, comply and say cool you'll reward me if I play according to your game rules sweet sign me up Amazon billions and billions of dollars let's do that so it's like it's this cycle where somebody people need to break the cycle because we are forced 
to operate in an incentive structure that says you need to make X amount of money to survive and feed your family. Therefore, you need to sacrifice your most precious resource that you have, your time, over to something that you you don't really quite want to be doing. And therefore, you don't have the uh, time to look into how you're being manipulated and tricked and hoodwinked and how, you know, all of our participation in this in this machine that keeps spinning is leading to, um, you know, is going to lead to our uh, extinction. Yeah, it's interesting because that kind of brings me back to something we were chatting about right before the podcast, uh, which was kind of it's uh, it's parallel to things like alcohol and sports and uh, these other forms and porn, you know, these other things that kind of pull us in, take our time, energy, money, and attention uh, that don't really do anything productive to improve us as people. And in a lot of cases are us filling gaps. And so maybe the deeper question is, why do we have these gaps? What is it that we're trying to uh, yeah. compensate for by engaging in this way that we basically give up our freedom and our sovereignty. It's civilization, bro. It's the, the you know, in Chris Ryan's book, Civilized to Death, where he, he questions the measurement tool of progress. Like what, what, what we define progress as, like, are we measuring the right things instead of like GDP? Why are we measuring that? Like, is that really progress? Right. Or is that just like a, a, a simulacra, like a, a reflection, a symbol, a symbol, um, a, a replication, fake plastic trees, you know, represent like what we consider to be progress. Like how many things can we make and turn out and spin? But, uh, but civilization has this narrative that like, Life before the state was cruel, brutish, and short. You know, that like this uh, this Hobbesian or neo-Hobbesian view where it's like, look, if you if we didn't have the government and we didn't have, you know, um, a civil quote unquote civilized society, then then it would just be chaos and people would just be eating each other in the streets. But we find that that's not the case. You know, in, in uh, disaster sociology, Rebecca Solnit uh talks about in her book a paradise built in hell that in in disaster situations people come together people support each other i mean just think about with the with the when the pandemic hit home like when the pandemic first started i was messaging people are you how are you doing are you okay like what's going on you know i think more and more people were were like open to being like hey like you know let's flatten the curve let's get through this thing let's do what we have to do you know, after the after nine eleven, like like when disaster strikes, people are more likely to come together. But anyway, this 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 civilizational model all functions in accordance with each other in this in this connected web of you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. From these institutions that we imbue with like some kind of mutated version of humanity to say be our saviors save us from this eternal damnation of no meaning and nihilism. You know, Friedrich Nietzsche said that uh, God is dead and we killed him, right? Like God is dead and we killed him. And what he meant by that is like science and rationality and like uh, nihilism has taken over and we no longer have like trust and faith in each other. So this fucking, you know, a cap crony capitalist civilizational progress machine is built upon uh, us continuing to just kind of like, you know, remain these isolated, um, separated by virtual screens, separated by physical location, 
even now with social distancing and all this kind of stuff. So when we're isolated and all we're getting is these messages, just like in the documentary, like all this kid is just like in this world. He's just getting fed all this information. He's more likely to stew in, in, in this psychopathology that's, that's increasing buy things you, you don't you don't need people just order shit on amazon you don't need to go to the local store and say hey joe how's the coffee today you know well, well real quick let's let's jump into that topic the uh, the divisiveness i mean this is this is something that we see as right now kind of being maybe the most divisive we've ever been as a society in my lifetime at least. definitely and yeah. the movie gets into that when they kind of get they show uh extreme centrism is like the <laughs> yeah i found that to be kind of odd yeah i you know they i think they just picked some kind of ideology that doesn't really exist and and kind of use that as some extreme form uh but that's all this kid is seeing is this extreme centrism propaganda and you know he you can't really tell propaganda from anything that's real but and, is it propaganda though i mean everyone's got their own subjective reality and uh i i guess the the thing that that upsets me in that area is that we as a people have been turned against each other purposefully and totally hundred percent. It It's worked. It's worked for the elite to keep their position because if everyone's faced it to each other, then they don't look at who's actually the oppressor. Yep. And it's happened, you know, at least in our country since Bacon's rebellion. And it's, it's something where back to this personal responsibility, I think we all have a responsibility to question the ideas, beliefs, and thoughts that we're attached to and what's truly there beneath. And the more that we can do to disconnect from the technology that pulls us and connect more with each other and ask each other thoughtful questions and sit there and understand and listen and truly know what the person is saying, even if we completely disagree, I think that's so important because the internet is built to be an echo chamber of ideas as well as a place where you can just not have to show your face at all. You can just throw um, vitriol and hatred up on a screen that could hurt or damage uh, someone with basically no repercussions. And it's taken the humanity out of our interactions. And that's the one thing we all have in common that we've lost sight of. But you, but we can also spread truth and positivity and inspiration as well. You know, it's not all hate and, and vitriol. But is it as is it authentic? I mean, I still question that when there's like the positivity things. Is is that authentic or is that um, is that posturing to look better on your profile? Well, I mean, I I think you're yeah. I think what you're what you're talking about is a certain kind of like of that you know. But what I'm talking about is like discovering like without the the internet and I mean, I guess maybe social media. I, I would throw it in there, but certainly the internet. I wouldn't have discovered a lot of the thinkers and authors and philosophies and things that I like that I was inspired by and and continue to be inspired by. Sure. And I guess that gets us into the Internet being a tool. Uh, now, when we compare it to other tools like a knife, a knife could kill someone or it could, you know, cut up food and feed you. Uh, whereas the Internet, it's not just this tool that we use. It's this tool that can be used against us. And I think coming back to this personal responsibility, how are we using these things? What are we conscious of in this thing? If you're looking it up, if you're using the internet to find these new ideas and thinkers and, and new uh, forms of media to consume that helps you evolve your thoughts and, and your work, um, at what point does that become something where you're getting these other suggestions and that's evolving you in a certain way? Um, I think that's the interesting dynamic to to be looking at here with the internet being something that's 
it's like an intelligent tool that's beyond a tool that's become something of its own. Yeah, I think it's the we're in the singularity. Like we, the trajectory that we're going on right now is that we are merging with machines. Like we, most of us operate our lives as cyborgs. I mean, like this thing is in my hand or in my pocket pretty much all the time. And in the documentary, Tristan Harris talks about how amazing it is to be able to push a button and get an Uber to come and pick them up and go somewhere. There's amazing things that technology can do, right? So I think the core question is, can we learn from our past mistakes? Every civilization that has risen has fallen. Otherwise, we would be, you know, a Mongolian empire world or something like that, right? So it's like, can we learn from the, the past and say, and decide when enough is enough? You know, I think that's the true definition of wisdom. When I think of that, I think of, um, I think of sort of like, for whatever reason, the image that, that comes up in my mind is of a, an old wise chief, you know, who, who knows like, we will not, we will not attack. We will not strike. Like it knows how to, to, to keep your sword sheathed, but be ready for battle, but keep your sword sheathed. Like be shout out to sheath. Enter code Mikeadelic for twenty percent off sheath underwear. Um, <laughs> but to keep your sword sheathed in and and tend to your garden, tend like Jack Cornfield says, tend to the part of the garden that you can touch. So you know, try and and do positive things in in your personal life, in your relationships with your friends and your family, and then try and engage in technology in a meaningful way that enables and fosters real connection with humans, real discourse, like what you are doing with good cinema, what we're doing right now, we're having a discussion and, you know, I'm sure we have disagreements and we'll, and we'll talk about them, but there's also places that this can happen too. And I think I just, when I look at the trajectory of the world and I see where things are going and I see the youth and how easily influenced the youth are, I see trouble. I see my God, like just rabid, vapid materialists, like, you know, spectacle um, shows out there. But this is nothing new. It's just a new form because we, in this society at least, have had messages, you know, sent into our brains for a long time. That have Bitches ain't shit behave. but hoes and tricks. Get on that knee. Yeah, so, yeah like messages like that. <laughs> sure. That too. <laughs> um, but yeah, like from radio to TV to, you know, all these forms of mass media. Now we just have our own individual media that's curated specifically for us. So, you know, some might say that, you know, that's more influential in certain ways. I, I think now, while it might be scarier in some ways, I think we have an advantage to where before we could have had conscious intention and it would be to, you know, go to a library and read some things and, not watch TV or listen to the radio. Now we can use kind of the same tool that feeds us things that may not serve us. But if we use conscious intention, we can use it in a way that really helps to enrich us, connect us and grow who we are and who we are associated with. Yeah. I, I, I mean, obviously I, I, I want, I, you know, I think that, but I also think that is it such a bad thing that reality is being fractured into subsets of, of, uh, you know, quasi like warring mimetic tribes of, of, of differing narratives. 
yes and no. I, I think it's, you know, you talk a lot about kind of tribalism and how it would serve us to get in these smaller tribes where we feel more connected. So in that case, yes. Um, in the case, no, is that it's the warring divisiveness. It's the, as uh, Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. speaks of in, um, in the five levels of agreement, it becomes fanaticism for some. And that's where we completely lose sense of who we like are. Like religion. Yeah. And we vilify, well, in some, some cases of religion, yeah. When we vilify others for not thinking the way we think or not right. believing what we believe, um, it goes far beyond identifying and it becomes something that can become very dangerous and, and not serve us as a species. But what's more dangerous, uh, a, a global hegemonic uh, forced version of reality that's trying to unify people into one objective truth under global totalitarian control of, of uh, you know, like the, the what's being called the, the technocratic oligarchy you know, is that is that more dangerous, or is it more dangerous to have people believing their own realities, organizing with other people that believe what they believe, and then separating and you know, sort of maybe having a conflict here from time to time? No, I think the latter is much better, but it's a conflict here or there is different than constant conflict and trying to impose your beliefs on others. I think if we all agreed to say, yes, I believe this, and I respect and celebrate you for believing what you believe we'd be living in a completely different world than we do. Yeah, totally. I think, I mean, but isn't, is, do you think this is just like part of the evolutionary process of consciousness in our human experience? Like this is unprecedented. We've never had this technology and been connected to so many people before. And because of that, we're, we're, everybody is sharing their subjective, you know, experience with the world and it's, coming into conflict with other people's experiences and we're going, no, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. So isn't that just part of the growing process? Yeah, do you think? I, absolutely. Especially when technology has advanced like 10 million times faster than we as humans have. Yes. We basically have not evolved at all since the stone age right. as humans, but technology has evolved trillions of times more. And that's the fucking scary part. That's when we blow ourselves up. Yes. That's what the Fermi paradox, uh, Nick, Oh, well, Nicholas Bostrom uses the Fermi paradox in his book, super intelligence to, to make the point that like, you know, why haven't we discovered intelligent life? And he gives these scenarios and I think it's three scenarios. And one of them is because, you know, all intelligent life out there have, have, have blown themselves to smithereens because they haven't been able to reckon with the power that they've, they've birthed into the world. You know, we, the, we create tools and the tools create us and shape us and we augment to, to their dictates and demands and Kevin Kelly's book, like what technology technology wants, you know, and, and Douglas Rushkoff talks about, you know, team human liber liberating ourselves from the slavery of technology. We don't serve it, but, but it can serve us. And I think that's always been the goal of, of mankind of, of the human race has been, how can we, you know, co come out of the caves and start to, uh, you know, expand into the world and, make tools that give us more time for the things that make us feel fucking human. Like give us these, let's make tools that increase leisure time. We're supposed to, that's what we're supposed to be doing. How much leisure time do we have now? We still have 40 hour work weeks. People attach their phones, answering emails 24 seven, you know, all this kind of stuff. Now virtual, you, you have to be in front of a, a fucking screen. So it's like, we're really leaning in that direction of like being more servants of the machines, maybe in, in this comfort that they're going to take us to some kind of form of salvation. 
Well, the, the problem I see is, yeah, the technology was meant to free us up. But the problem was when we became freed up, we had nothing else to take over what we were being freed from. We were being freed from, you know, doing things like, uh, I guess, going out and hailing a cab or going out and getting groceries versus just ordering them online. But then when we do that, instead of going to the grocery, we're spending that time just staying online. And I think back to this kind of conscious intention, what is it that we really want to be filling our lives with? And how can we use technology to help uh, to help make things more efficient to where we can be spending more of our lives doing what we want? Yeah. Uh, Wait, are you saying that we we had technology, technology has sort of liberated us to a certain extent to now we we need to create more problems because we're bored or something or yeah look at netflix i mean the easier we made it to watch more things the quicker we started watching more things it yeah. wasn't like oh now i'm going to save an and, hour and, from and going the, to blockbuster and the, and the quicker picking a movie yeah and the quicker you get dissatisfied the quicker yeah. you go ah, i'm bored with this like a spoiled kid with a toy his parents buy him everything and you go oh this was fun for five minutes but now i want something new so it's that that always wanting more. Yeah. That's that's a, a human consciousness, human spirit issue, yeah. right? Yeah, it's it's this it's it's not like technology. I guess here's the problem. Technology came before we learned to be okay with being with doing nothing and we were in this busy state and then technology came about and it's like okay so we got to stay in this busy state just in a completely different form. Yeah. That's what we need to transform and if if we can start to figure that out I think we can approach technology with a much more open mind that serves us. So we can talk about government till we're blue in the face about regulations, this and, you know, capitalism, that. And uh, at the end of the day, what are we doing to 100% how we approach technology and in a bigger sense, our daily lives? Yeah, we can't just demand uh, massive institutions of bureaucracy and you know look at what's going on in minnesota right now with the, the with the defund the police thing like it's not working out because there's so much bureaucracy there's so much conflict there's so much inner turmoil and trauma and toxicity it's like you, you know it's hard to to you know like howard zinn says in 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 um if i can forgot the name the of the people's book history of the yeah United people's States. history that democracy in action comes from the the bottom up yeah. Like it doesn't come from the top down. Well, yeah, with Minneapolis, it's like they just like we didn't have a plan for when technology, you know, made things easier. They did not have a plan for if they were defunding the police. It wasn't like, okay, cool, we're going to appropriate all this money for mental health and peace officers and we're going to actually adjust how we serve education and and feed the the most marginalized and impoverished in our areas that can address the root cause of crime that cops are actually meant to address it's it's a systemic <laughs> yeah. thing that it's just it's really easy to say yeah defund them and then that'll get the protesters to stop instead of saying maybe the protesters are doing this because there's a bigger objective in place and that's that their people have been marginalized for 400 years now well yeah i mean i mean sure for sure um i wanted to say something about the uh the adaptation to the promises and the allure of technology. And so the other day I saw this, someone posted this about how like to, to breathe fresh air, you could wear this. So it like, it works, it works as a mat. It's a picture of a guy in like a bubble helmet and it has, it's like a, it has like a filter in there and it's like, you know, the purest form of oxygen. I, I used to hear jokes about this and make jokes about this, like in space balls, like the, 
guy that Mel Brooks plays, like on that planet, he he cracks open a can of Perrier air and like sniffs the air because the environment is so poisoned that. So it's like, you know, we can we can keep going down the route of you know using technology as this hammer where everything's a nail and technology is just going to be this this you know technology the the sort of um uh relationship between big technology big pharma big medical big science big government big corporation big bit like that entanglement is just like hey don't worry like we're not going to change the structures of of reality for you guys we're just going to come up with creative solutions so it's like don't worry if like the world is burning and everything's on fire and there's toxic fumes everywhere we have these bubble suits that you can wear and you know you guys have been used to wearing masks so it's fine you just one more layer um so that that's the the worry that i have is that like we won't be able to recognize how much this is actually impacting us and that we'll just get sucked down the 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 hole of like using technology as this band-aid that that we keep putting on this you know these gaping bullet wounds like over and over again. Yeah, yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean Sorry, I don't want to be no, like depressing, I mean, as a but, society, yeah, we don't realize shit until it's too late. Yeah. And then it's too late. And then at that point we're just like, well, fuck it, we might as well just keep doing it since it's too late. I mean, look at what's happening with forest fires and hurricanes. And I mean, it's it's happening at a physical level and still it's not enough to be done. Why do we have faith that anything will ever be done in a way that actually serves us, you know, at from the root from? Yeah. At a mass scale. Yeah. That's why I think really the only thing that we can do is, you know, people that listen to this show, people that we're friends with, like that we can just kind of talk about these things, be aware of, of what the landscape is, be aware of what we're engaging with, you know, and choose to operate and function within that only when necessary with intention, right? Like I think one of the great things that I learned from Tristan Harris years ago, I think like a couple of years ago when he first wrote a piece and started the Center for Humane Technology was to organize my phone in such a way where um, I have all my social media apps in folders in the back of my phone and that when I go to my search bar on my phone, I can't type in Instagram and find it in the search function. So if I want to go to Instagram, I have to swipe three times, go to the box and then go into the folder, swipe again and then open up. So it, it becomes a more of an intentional act even though it is still sort of like a compulsive act to check what's happening on social media. How many likes did I get? Did that thing that I post, you know, work? What are people saying? What's going on in the world? What's the news? So, and then, you know, knowing our screen time, putting restrictions on, on time. And then actually just like what I'm, what I'm getting at is that when we have more of like, I think one of the things that the, the pandemic has done actually has, like you, you're, you can't really just like walk down the street anymore and just be like, oh, I'm going to pop into this shop. Oh, I saw this thing. I'm just going to buy it. Like it's more like, okay, places aren't open. And if you want to buy something, you actually have to think about it now and have like an intention and an action to go and to do that thing. Same thing with engaging with social media, although it's not foolproof. It's still, it still has that seductive allure to it. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, what you're saying kind of reminds me of James Clear's Atomic Habits when he's saying, you know, if there's a habit you want to break, make it you know less attractive and make it more difficult. And and to me, that seems like another form of like a regulation, just a personal regulation of, you know, I'm not going to do this or I'm going to make myself not able to do this as easily. Whereas instead, I, I like to ask the question of like what's truly serving me? Why do I need this? Is this, is this something I truly need? And so a question I have for you, cause I've deleted all social media apps from my phone because they became these compulsive things that I was just doing with any moments of downtime. And now maybe downtime might include like looking at a tree, breathing, reading a book, you know, things that actually serve me or are just me getting more comfortable with downtime, which in itself I think could be helpful for all of us to just slow down. Uh, but for you, someone that needs social media and uses social media on a professional level, how do you how do you separate that from personal, and how do you kind of keep keep the professional side there to use it as a way that helps you increase your audience and engagement, but also personally making sure that it's serving you in the way that's healthy? I guess I don't really use it like personally, really. Like, I guess, I, I mean, sometimes every now and then I'll throw up a picture, like, you know, Jen and I traveled uh, around a bit this summer and went camping and took beautiful pictures and all these wonderful places. And I think normally maybe in the past I would have like posted a bunch of pictures. Like I only posted a few because it's just like, all right, what am I just going to record the whole trip and just like showcase it for everyone? So I'm like, whatever, like I, I was there. The moments were great. I saw the things I saw. I experienced what I experienced. There's no way that I could duplicate that experience. And like, what, what's my goal? What's my intention here to show like how much better my life is than, than yours or something like that. Yeah. So that's not the goal anymore. That, that never really was. And per professionally, it's more about like, I, I want to put things out there that I feel are like important for people to see and to know. And other than that, I do find myself getting into unhealthy, mindless scrolling, but I wouldn't say it's necessarily mindless. I'd say that I'm very much interested in like inspecting the landscape of reality and like seeing what are people like doing and saying out there? What are people, you know, posting? Well, and that's two things out of that one. Yeah. That reality, another thing they get into in the movie, like that reality is your reality. No one else sees that. And so they, you know, bring up Tristan Harris brings up this thought of like, you know, if you get politically incensed, you're like, how is no one else seeing this information that I'm seeing? Well, they aren't. You're only seeing the information that is curated for you. And so this, you know, you kind of doing this audit of what's out there, that audit is made specifically for you to see what's out there. And so, are yeah, you really but I, a full picture? well, yeah, but I also make sure that I'm constantly looking at things that I like don't agree with or that I normally wouldn't have an interest in so that I'm getting other things in my feed. So, and, and I seek things out, like I'll hear about something or I'll find something. So I'm not just going with recommendations for the algorithm or whatever, but like on Instagram, if I click on a picture of a, a guy making a burger and then I click on a picture of like, you know, someone doing like a prank to their grandma or something, though more of those things will come up, but it's like, I don't want those things. So I, I ignore them. I just happen to have an interest at one particular time, you know? Right. That makes sense. Uh, the other thing I was going to ask is, you know, regarding the pictures of places that, that's so interesting that, you know, how, how many people I know that will go travel somewhere and like, as they're on the trip, be posting like 
20 pictures a day of like what they're doing as if they're documenting it and instant nostalgia. Yeah. And, and I think, I think in one hand, it's actually pretty helpful because you're documenting your trip. You're helping yourself remember it. It's, it's a process of, it's almost like a, a live kind of journaling of the experience you're in. But I think it goes a little deeper than that for some, if not most of it being this, you know, I need you to see what I'm doing. And yeah, I, I wonder what the effects of that are of, mm. of us needing to broadcast what we're doing to everyone. This, this compulsion, not just of knowing what others are doing, but of making sure that they know what we're doing and not in a super vulnerable way, not of like, this is truly how I'm feeling, but this is how great my life is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it it's, it's much of the reality that we live in right now is a, a spectator reality. You know, like people want to live vicariously through other people, Instagram models on boats traveling through Bali doing yoga and, you know, posting pictures with turtles on top of a mountain somewhere. It's like people want to be there. They want to experience that. They but they're not. So they're just like they're on social media. They're on Instagram. And the people that are posting those things are posting them because when they post them, they get a crazy amount of likes, which makes them feel like their life has some kind of purpose and meaning that they have some validity in what they're doing, that they feel like they're seen, like they're heard, like they're connected to their fam. You know, what up fam? Yo, I'm out here in Bali, like check it out. And everyone's like, oh my God, that's amazing. Oh, I wish I was there. And then there's this spectator, um, you know, collector sort of mentality of collecting experiences, collecting moments and showcasing them like little trinkets on a shelf to be like, oh, look, look at this. Oh, my God, it's so beautiful. Oh, my God, look at this. This is now fuck that thing. This thing is the thing. Look at this thing. Oh, this is wonderful. This is so cool. Let's get this. And it's just like it's this never ending hit of dopamine. Like I remember listening to this Ram Dass talk where he talked about you know, the, the, the finding peace. He's like, you think you find peace when you go buy that new car and you buy that new car and you drive off the lot and you go, ah, I've made it. He's like, but it's only a matter of time until you want something more. We, we just want life to be this roller coaster ride that just goes wee all the way up and never comes down. Yeah, it's this constant need for validation. Yeah. And you mentioned something that I want to hit on um, about uh, the posting to be to feel seen and heard. And I think that's so important to focus on because right now, especially now, as we're not able to gather in large groups, people aren't able to get together as much as they used to, whether it be friends or family, uh, we become a lot more isolated and many of us are not being seen and heard. And, and it was that case before the pandemic happened, but it's, it's, almost, and we're being trained to fear each other. Yeah. We're trained to fear each other, but it's, it's this technology has become a proxy for real vulnerability and real connection with others. And I think that's one of the biggest travesties that it's a tool that can really allow us to, to get together and to connect. But the way that it's been manipulating us has been something that, uh, I don't think it's genuinely having people being seen and heard. Otherwise, they wouldn't be posting like the most fantastic pictures ever. They'd be posting pictures of them waking up in the morning or having a bad day or taking a shit or just these <laughs> things that are human that all of Shit's us experience. Because truly being seen and heard is, I think, it's partially seeing our image in someone else and, and feeling that that empathy. And, and I think there's a big empathy gap when it comes to... Uh, when it comes to being online, it's this posturing and comparing and being better than and, and this envy and jealousy that arises and it's not true connection. And I wonder how we might be able to shift 
the technology as we use it to to really become more of a catalyst for connection versus uh, a replacement. Yeah, I think that it has to come from us. Like when enough people demand change, then the change will come. Like when enough people demand that, you know, when you when you shop at Whole Foods or whatever that that you know that you're getting fair trade organic stuff or something like that, and that um, you know a portion of what you purchase is going to be given to a charity or something like it makes you feel better about what you're engaging in. Like how much of that is true truth? I don't know. It definitely makes us feel better. We see happy cows on the milk and all that crap, you know. So it makes us feel better. So it gives us this illusion of feeling like we're contributing but in in a real sense it's also that the you know wanting to participate like how many people have become more eco-conscious in the last 10 years you know like being more aware of the products that they're consuming the amount of you know plastics and and things like that so when that change comes like you see even at McDonald's Burger King like they all have salads now they all have grilled chicken things like they're all trying to stay within the thing that's that's making them money and that has their domination in the marketplace but also cater to the demands of people that want to see real change but that real change never really comes but it comes in a in a commoditized version of change within that system you know and it's like we're all complicit like the more that we vote with our dollars vote with our time and our attention the more that we the the plurifer plur proliferation <laughs> and and uh, propagation of those things happens. So we're complicit in this sort of mass illusionary disinformation campaign. But I my theory is that we like it. Like we like to go to a magic show and be fooled. And a lot of what we're seeing in the virtual space and with technology and social media is this form of like, you know, trickery and like magic and like, and like illusion to participate in, in order to distract us from the sort of harsh truth of reality. Yeah. And we like uh, not taking responsibility and taking the easy way and having other people make decisions for us and tell us what we should and should not be doing. And it's easier that way, especially when all of that is catered specifically to us versus mass media it's easy to say well the news said this and you know this was on tv and so this is how i'm going to emulate it and you know have this be my life but when it when it becomes more based on what your uh thoughts and actions are then it really seems like you and it seems like this more authentic version of you even if it's not at all identity attachment right tell us tell us who to be tell me what to think tell me what to believe yeah, who do I associate with? You know, this that's feeling of belonging. By doing this, I belong with these people. Even if that's not who I truly am, I'll sacrifice that to make sure that I belong with this group. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah, the I wanna read a, a quote actually that I thought was really good from The Journey of Crazy Horse, this book about um the uh, native uh, Lakota population that was getting overtaken by the the white imperial um, soldiers. And in, in the book, he talks about, uh, the quote is the soldiers were not the only ones to cause the turmoil of the past four months. The finger of blame could be pointed at many Lakota as well. In fact, they were mostly to blame. 
The white agents, the army officers, fanned the flames of jealousy and let little minds that could not think beyond the moment and little men who yearned for recognition and power do the rest. There was no other way to look at it. In the end, the Lakota defeated themselves. They had the whites outnumbered and outmanned and did nothing. The entire garrison could have been overrun by enough determined Lakota fighting men with a good plan if they truly wanted to return to living in the old way, in control of their lands and their lives. Instead, men stepped over each other to betray their own relatives in order to obtain the power handed out by the whites, a power that they couldn't get on their own. And I read that quote because I feel that that's applicable to like today's predicament is that we're, we're, we're seduced by the allure of freedom, purpose, meaning, validation through technology and social media, and we're willing to fight with each other. And when we do that, we're going to destroy this fucking country. We're going to destroy this world because we're not focusing on, you know, the fact that like, really a lot of these outside promises and all these things aren't really going to give us what we want. We have to give it to ourselves first. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That, that brings up a question that uh, I think uh, may help turn this in the positive direction, depending on your answer here. But uh, I'd love to know with, when it comes to technology and, and it evolving so much quicker than we are as humans and, and where we are at this point in time and space, uh, what gives you hope? What gives you hope in this context? The thing that gives me hope is the fact that there's people that can resist the urge and that, and that those people are going to be the ones that create appealing alternatives uh, that will start to sort of whisper to the rest of people like, hey, it's it's way better over here. Come over here. This is better. Like, this is a better way to do things, right? Like, um, you know, I, I suppose I'm trying to think of a good example, but like... I don't know, for, for example, like Gmail, right? Like it's like, oh, Gmail, they can read your mail. They'll target you with advertising from that. You know, the government can spy on you and that kind of stuff. Okay, so what's another alternative? Well, there's um, Tristan Harris in the Center for Humane Technology has something that they offer. There's a service called Proton Mail that I've been using, which is like an encrypted one, right? Okay, like messaging apps, they're not secure. So like, what do we use? Signal telegram wicker you know these dual encrypted messaging apps self dis disappearing apps and things like that so i think that when enough people start to migrate to new locations when enough people start to say like like i migrated to denver from new york because i was like new york is fucking turning into a nightmare dystopian hellhole cesspool like i want to be in nature i want to be with people that are open-minded i want to be somewhere where they ha have legal cannabis where mushrooms are decriminalized you know and and from that liberated and open and 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 baked in reverence for for others ways of of doing things that new things can emerge out of that you know and that's where that's where i'm a big believer in like you know uh the individual the entrepreneur the the innovator to think of of new things that don't that aren't tainted by the the old structure you know so i i have i have a lot of hope when i see people doing medicine ceremonies retreats um groups connection council shout out 
you know, men's groups, women's groups, spiral method, um, breath work, uh, you know, when, when people are breaking off into these little subgroups to, to feel more connected with themselves and others in re in real life, that's what gives me hope because when, when, like, like when I'm experiencing that, I'm like, man, this is it. Like, this is the truth. Like when I'm out in nature and I'm not, and I don't have my phone, I'm like this, I feel alive. Like I feel great. And, uh, so I'm, I'm hopeful in the sense that, that, that that's going to be happening no matter what. And that eventually the pressure, the, the turmoil, the pain, the trauma is going to be so severe for most people that they're going to look around for other ways. Just like we see with psychedelics. I've been on pain, you know, I've been on pain medication. I've been on antidepressants for so long and nothing's worked. You know, I, then I read Michael Pollan's book, you know, I'm hearing things like this from senior citizens who are 60 and, and over. Uh, you know, I, I decided to, to, to try a new way, right? Like that's what I decided to do too. I was like, I'm going to fucking Peru to do ayahuasca because I feel like nothing can fucking help me right now. And it did and it helped me. So it opened me up and do a whole new way of being. And my friend Adam, who's speaking at a conference this weekend and, and wrote a, a little nice piece on Facebook talked about, you know, that, that healing doesn't exist privately and into it doesn't exist only in this private vacuum, but we actually need community and we need each other. Derek Sivers, the first fan theory, do you know about that? Where the guy's dancing on the, in the field at the music festival and no one's dancing around him. And then all of a sudden one person joins and the next thing you know, there's five people. And the next thing you know, there's a hundred people. Yeah. It's giving others permission, to giving others that. permission. And I think, I think yes. that plus what Charles Eisenstein talks about, um, uh, in, uh, the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible mm. is that true transformation into this kind of this spiritual world, this authentic way of being is only possible within community because then you're held accountable. You're given support. You're helped along your path instead of being dumped back into a reality that doesn't support the changes that you're trying to make. And so I think the more that we are able to gather together and create these intentional spaces for growth and healing, um, that's what that's what's going to enable to propel us. And so technology can be used as a tool to help us gather, to help us find each other, and to help us find our true center, our truth, uh, and amongst community can really help radiate that out into the world. So, yeah, I'm with you on that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you using it as the, t the tools to... Uh, enable action in, in, in IRL, in real life, you know, like using it as these tools. So for a while I, I got rid of Facebook on my phone and everything. And I only had Facebook events because I was like, you know, this is a good way of finding events. And yeah, I, I miss events. Yeah, yeah. Events are great. So I had like Eventbrite. I had Facebook events, Facebook marketplace, and I didn't have actual Facebook. And my, you know, my problem is I don't really have a problem with Facebook necessarily. I, I more have a problem with like the, the indoor world, you know, and especially since the pandemic, you know, like a lot of what's going on with the pandemic, you know, the, the, in, in, in from what I've read, researched, gathered, felt my felt experience, uh, my felt sense of knowing, uh, that it's not necessarily about keeping us safe from a virus that I think a lot of the actions that are being taken, a lot of the rules and orders that are being put in place are to advance the technocratic system and implement more control and more surveillance and more things like, um, you know, 
uh, social credit systems so that if you say something that doesn't align with the establishment that you're not, no longer to board a plane, get on a boat, take a train, you can't go into a museum, you know, these, these sorts of things because a more controlled society means more obedient people, which means less problems to have to worry about, which means more wealth and resources and power for the, the people at the top. So I just think that like the, the thing that scares me is the insulated world you know, the, 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 not necessarily these components like social media, because speaking of Charles Eisenstein, he launched his own social media platform called a new and ancient story. And it's this, this is, I think is social media 2.0. It's like the, the people getting together, people like Charles and people that have the resources, the know-how to, to put together communities like this, to form alternative communities that can foster engagement with like-minded, like-hearted people. And then also that leads to more things being carried out in the world. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's what the future's got to look like. It's us taking more ownership in our platforms and how we're using technology and what's there for us to connect through. And that at its core being built intentionally to serve what we really want, not what others are telling us that we want. And, uh, and so, yeah, it's that also gives me hope that like these things are being created uh, by the people out there that are the thought leaders and visionaries of uh, a better world, both physically, uh, digitally, and in the analog world. Yeah, because I don't think you're ever going to be able to stop the machine. You know, like I think it's really going to be very hard for people inside the labyrinth of Google and Facebook and all these places to to wake up and to say like, oh, we need to do things better like they'll pay yeah, they have shareholders it's not like exxon's right. gonna just switch to wind and solar overnight like that no <laughs> yeah well chris ryan makes a great point about this where he's like exxon doesn't give a fuck about you you know you watch their commercials it's like it's like a a baseball like a junior little league baseball team playing and like the dad is like rushing to make it there from work and he has to stop to get gas and like he fills up his tank and he gets to his son's game and his son hits a home run and they're cheering and it's like exxon for making it to the places that you care about and it's like you don't fucking care. You're a, you're a corporation that's answering to shareholders and a board. You're not a person that cares. You know, like corporations are people, my friend. Yeah, fuck that, right? Like, but even even like banks, like back in the day, local bank, like it was all about local. Like you'd go into the bank and you'd have a conversation with the person at the bank about a loan. He'd, be, he'd know you, know your family, know your business, and be like, oh, I guess we can give it to you. Now it's all data and algorithms. The last and... time I went into a physical bank, someone walked me over to the ATM and showed me how to use that. <laughs> I couldn't even like go to a person. They didn't have people. They just had machines. They yeah. would show you how to use. Yeah. That's, what that, that's what this technocratic oligarchic system wants is they want us to be machines machines that that all we do is is produce energy uh through our time uh our, our servitude uh to their way of doing things and then in reward we get to uh, consume well that's an interesting shift because as you know if you think about it 100 years ago the industrial revolution that's when humans really were machines in a way of kind of building things and creating and a lot of that's becoming more automated and now it's like what we really need more is what humans can do more more create more creative and empathic work right uh but maybe ubi can do that 
What's that? Yeah, a universal basic oh, income. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And that frees us up to do those types of things. Um, I guess that's a whole other conversation in itself of where that comes from and who's controlling that and all that. But I think I think the bigger picture is that as we are not machines in a way of producing goods and and needing to kind of create all these services so that the economy can run, if all that's being done by machines and technology, then our place in their economy still needs to be there. And so then we become these machines of consumption. And yeah, the managers of the, the machines. Yeah. yeah, exactly. We're, we're then machines in a completely new way to where it's, oh, all these free things at our disposal. Cool. Without realizing what's on the other end of that and, and how that's helping these other big entities just succeed. Well, I always thought about that. I always thought like how in the, in this modern time that we're all kind of like these machine farmers and we just like sell each other our stories and like sell each other our products and services. And it's like, we're all, we're all just like, you know, complicit in, in, in this like whole operation of this like abstract fake sort of artificial virtual world whereas like imagine if the internet went down like it crashed like i think most i think what that might it might be a good thing actually i think so i mean it's like i mean when the pandemic happened it's almost like everything kind of just crashed for a moment and you know a lot of things still aren't happening but like right when it happened everyone's like on lockdown and and it's like, oh, okay, so now we're freed up to be with our families and be with our dogs and not just leave these things and go sit in traffic and sit in an office and then come back home and then eat dinner and go to bed. But we actually got to find enrichment out of life and, and what was around us all the time that we might have you know, lost sight of. Uh, the internet crashing would do the exact same thing. We'd open our eyes, we'd pick our heads up instead of staring down. Uh, we'd look at each other at a table across from us. We'd look at the trees and the birds and, and nature that's around us that we oh, are yeah. blind to instead of just reading articles and playing games and watching movies and all that as we're commuting places. Yeah. Try telling like a 10-year-old kid to just sit down and look at a bird. Like He's like, what? Like, no, I'll go on my phone. I want to see a bird get eaten by a lion on YouTube. It's Man, like I remember long like car rides when I was a kid. used to play the fucking quiet game, which I hated so much. <laughs> Uh, quiet game. Yeah, I was a loud kid. I, you know, I wanted attention and, uh, you know, we're on a car ride and I'm like, oh, these things are coming up. I had to play the quiet game. Let's see who now, can be quiet the, mo- yeah, the most. That yeah. game doesn't exist anymore. Now you just put a fucking screen in front of a kid and they'll be quiet for hours and then they just become zombies in front of these screens and, like, I don't see nearly as many kids outside playing football. And I, that used to be me every day after school. Like, I let's never go play and let's yeah. interact as Yeah. Use our imagination. Yeah, exactly. But playing make believe, make believe, pretend. Yeah, on a screen. That's what I'm saying. We're like we're these spectators and collectors. We're like we look at things as a, this audience. Like, and Charles Eisenstein talks about this in one of his books about how in tri- in a lot of like tribal societies, everybody was an entertainer, everybody was a musician, everybody was a hunter, everybody was a participant in this this collective joy bring your drum play your drum you know sit around a fire like we did the other night like you know it's like we get, we all get to participate in creating something and, and and making something and we don't have to relegate um you know our our entertainment as this compartmentalized separate thing like these are entertainers 
They exist over here and they're here to entertain me and I just participate. I don't know how to do anything except for consume. I don't know how to do anything but call a plumber. I don't know how to do anything but call a mechanic. It's like we're losing touch with like doing things for ourselves and providing our own source of, of entertainment and value. Well, I guess there, there's two things that that brought up. One is that I think one cool thing about technology is you can very easily get lessons on pretty much anything yeah, for definitely. basically free. Yeah. And you can create and create an audience basically from nothing and basically for free. And so you can be seen, you can express yourself, you can pro- you know, create your own art and have an audience for it without needing to find a, you know, a, an actual market for it. And um, the other is that it's it's shifting the way that we educate. And right now there's certainly a lot of hiccups and a lot of it is not to be desired, but it's opening up new ways of educating that enable um, more individual outcomes, more education in nature and, and fitting what the specific kids need. And of course, right now it's more accessible to those with means, but I think it's, it's challenging us to think of new ways of, uh, of education that serve our children and can serve a future. And so, yeah, I mean, I hope the internet goes down for a while. I think that would be, <laughs> it might kind of dude. Cool thing. I think we need a shakeup like that. Just yeah. like we needed, this pandemic shakeup in a lot of ways. I'm telling you, something's going to happen around the election. I guarantee it. I guarantee you that there's going to be some kind of like internet power outage or something like that. And they're going to be like, oh, we we couldn't count the votes. It's a, We got hacked. There was some hack. There was some thing. And the internet will go out. The power will go out. I'm telling you, this this election is literally the biggest election like that's ever existed, I think, in the history of mankind. Yeah, it, and not to me. I don't give a shit. But to the but to, <laughs> right, to yeah. the world, no, and to really the ramifications, is. to the belief structures, and the yeah. identity attachments that people have placed on it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's you know, and I, I don't want the internet to go out forever. But I I think sometimes when you just turn something off and unplug for a little bit, I'm just thinking back to like when your Nintendo would quit working. You'd have to unplug it. You'd have to blow in the game, and then you'd have to you know put put it back in. And then it would work just fine again. I think we're we're building up a lot of dust and crap and crud. Yeah, that's that's blocking us from what the true what the truth is with with how we're using things and how they're serving us. Yeah, have you ever read Dune? No. Okay, so in in the book Dune, they talk about it takes place ten thousand years from uh, it takes place in the year ten thousand forty seven or something like that, and we've mankind has expanded itself into the galaxy into the solar system far beyond the solar system and we did so through intelligent ai thinking machines and there was this event called the uh butlerian jihad which was an act of rebellion against the ai thinking machines because what happened was it wasn't that the machines took over it was that people took over the machines and then used the machines to enslave other people and so they had a rebellion in the book, and then they put uh, a ban on no machine that mimics human consciousness, no machine that can think and perform complex uh, actions. And because of that ban, over the, over the next like thousand years or so, several thousand years, human beings started to evolve powers, psychic powers, um, clairvoyant, prescience, 
uh, all kinds of new human abilities emerge because we were not we were unencumbered from the limitations of machines because when we use machines, we use them as a crutch to get, you know, do all of our shit. We outsource our cognition and our abilities. So I like that. I think it's fascinating. And I wonder if there's truth to that. I mean, that's, you know, that, that makes me think of what, what psychedelics teach us, what ancient wisdom teaches us that we have everything we need within us, but what current society teaches us is that everything we need is, is outside of us. And I think that's the big because that's how they profit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's how if they we stay had everything in power. We need within us. Why would we need to buy all these things? Right. And so you know that brings me back to like this this form of capitalism that's based on just needing to accumulate as much as possible. What truly serves us is to just look internally. What's within us? How are ways we can see ourselves? Whether that's in community with others, whether that's our own private ceremonies or what have you. It's um, it's finding those powers and those strengths within us and um, and working on them and strengthening them to bring those out into the world. That's how we can make the world a better place by us all finding what's true within us and bringing that out to others. Yeah. And then having others reciprocate that. And you're in this, um, you know, nourishing feedback loop of friends and family and community, you know, that 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 you're giving to and they're and you're you're getting something as well. Let's get into uh, what do you think about getting into some of these questions in this PDF, The Social Dilemma. We can... uh, Yeah, the film uh, kind of created a discussion guide with uh, a bunch of questions and uh, some are kind of targeted to specific people like students and teachers or advertisers. And and then there's kind of some general ones on some themes. Uh, Yeah, what's what's juicy, Mike? What do you think's worth exploring here? Yeah, I'm looking through right now and... uh, I'm looking at the dilemma, the mental health dilemma, the democracy dilemma, the discrimination dilemma. You know, mental health is something we haven't talked about. I mean, how uh, teenage suicide rates have increased and uh, it's, you know, for younger people that already are trying to figure out regulation of emotions and and going through hormonal changes, uh, something that has, you know, social media that relies so much on kind of image and... I mean, that's already tough enough in middle school and high school. I mean, fuck, those sucked before there was social media. I mean, I was, I guess, 36 now, so it was a little before I was, I think social media started when I was in college. And so um, I don't know what that's like, and I can't even imagine what that's like when I was already trying to avoid certain people and certain things, but to have that be something that's just adding to the emotional and and mental stress at that age, uh, yeah, that's, that's wild. Yeah, so we we have some fast facts. A third of American adults and nearly half of those age 18 to 29 say they are online almost constantly, Pew Research Center. Teenagers who spend three hours a day or more on devices are 35% more likely, and those who spend five or more hours are 71% more likely to have a risk factor for suicide than those who spend less than one hour, uh, and there's a couple others. But let's let's get into some of the discussion questions. Do you find yourself unconsciously checking your phone or certain apps, did this or the impulse to happen at all while watching? The, oh, did this happen at all while watching the film, The Social Dilemma? What emotions seem to trigger this behavior? Uh, boredom is the emotion that triggers it, uh, or not feeling fulfilled in a moment. Uh, and I think boredom is something that has, I think we've. Inc- or decreased our capacity for boredom 
by the act of jumping to something else. Because we now have something we can jump to, what we're doing is we're training ourselves to not have the ability to sit with boredom and, and quiet. And, and even during movies, what, you know, looking at a phone, I purposely put my phone in another room when I'm watching something so that I can focus. Uh, sometimes I don't. And that is when, yes, to the answer to your first question, I do mindlessly kind of jump on my phone. Therefore, I've deleted all my social media apps so that I don't jump on those. And now it's a reminder when I just mindlessly open my phone to do something else. Mm. Yeah. You know, I had I had this weird dream uh, recently where I woke up and the, something was in my mind and it was GlaxoSmithKline. And I was like, what the fuck? Why am I? Why is GlaxoSmithKline in my brain? And it's a pharmaceutical company, I think, based out of the UK. And I was like, I had this idea for maybe writing a short story. I was like, holy shit, like. What if like advertisers were able to like incept themselves into my dreams and like try and influence like social media influence in the dream space? So then I wake up impregnated with this idea of like, oh, I should get some pharmaceuticals from GlaxoSmithKline or whatever. But uh, but but I after the, I I remember waking up that morning from that dream and thinking that, and then like I immediately like went to my phone unconsciously. With because I, I I had like thoughts and I just went phone has information, phone knows, you know rather than sort of maybe sitting with it or journaling about it, so I definitely do go unconsciously to the phone as this impulse to check, like especially in the morning, it's like what did I miss? What's going on? Like is the world still here? <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, there's I mean that brings up something else. Like we we have to know everything. It's like. When, when I'm having a conversation now with someone and we're like, well, is it this or this? It's like, well, let's, let's look at our phone and figure it out. I miss the the olden days, if you if you will, uh, <laughs> where if there was a, a question to something, it became a lively debate. And it was okay to not have the answer and just to each kind of come up with your own thoughts and ideas and opinions. But now, because we have the ability to be right, this, this kind of idea of righteousness uh, and kind of I think what's what we're losing is our curiosity. Yeah, we're we're losing kind of this this soft edge to answers to where you know maybe we don't have the exact answer, but we have what suits us, and this works for now. And it's like it's fun because it's a debate where no one really knows or can prove it, and and that's okay. But now we can know everything, and I think that in itself is kind of dangerous, especially when that answer is subjective. Dude, that is so it, man. You just hit the nail right on the head. It's our it's our constant quest, humanity's constant quest to find the end of reality, to find the the solutions to all things, to have all the answers to, to to the conquest and domination of time and space. It's like, oh, like we have we have to know. Like this is one of the the dogmas of science that Rupert Sheldrake talks about. Is like the materialist reductionist framework of the current scientific paradigm that dominates in the mainstream. It it acts as if we have ninety nine percent of everything figured out, and we're just looking for that one percent to like put into the puzzle, and then we'll just like all will be revealed, all will be known. Right, but but it's yeah, it, it's impossible though because. There is no one reality. There's trillions of them because reality isn't what we're looking at, but what we're looking through. 
I think. But that's just what I'm looking through. Yeah. It is. It 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 really is. What do they say? It's more to do with the glasses I'm wearing than what I'm looking at through the glasses. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. You know, I mean, I I believe that for most for most things in this world, reality is only held together by our general consensus agreement. That's where belief systems come from. You know, and and everything to a certain extent is a belief system. You have sort of hard facts like, okay, if I throw this lighter in the air, it's going to fall on the ground. I mean, that's, there's, there, there are these sort of hard facts of nature, but when it comes to institutions, concepts, agreements, ideas, these are all just sort of abstractions of our minds that we sort of run it by each other and say, are you, are you into this? Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Like, do you get down with this? Does this, and, and if enough people say yes to that, then it becomes normalized and systematized. And then, and then we indoctrinate people into that system. And then it becomes really, really difficult to see the water as the fish swimming in it, you know? Yeah. All right, let's move on to the next question, unless you have something else no, to no, add no. to that. Yeah, let's, let's keep going. All right, what kinds of emotional responses do you have to the content in your feed, in your social media feed? What content tends to have a negative impact on your well-being? How often do you see it? And feel free to play at home, folks. If you're if you're listening along, these questions are for you. And let's make it interactive. Uh, send in some of your responses to uh, Mikeadelic via yeah 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 send whatever it. ways you can communicate <laughs> with them. Send yeah send in some some of your thoughts and responses either on Instagram Mikeadelic underscore podcast or Mikeadelic pod at gmail dot com or on Facebook. So yeah. What or kinds if you're of a Patreon subscriber? We love you. Oh uh, yeah! On Discord, uh, feel free to open That's up right. conversation there. If you're not a Patreon subscriber, uh, Mikeadelic is worth subscribing to and uh, giving him even a dollar a month. But, uh, yeah, five is good. Yeah, but but he prefers five, <laughs> maybe even ten if you're if you're feeling good. Yeah, uh, then you can join his Discord uh, group. That's and, the way uh, that we fight the system. More in private. <laughs> you got to get rid of those Federal Reserve notes that are just, you know, poisoning you in your pocket. You take those Federal Reserve notes out and send them over to me. You could either burn them and, but that would, you know, cause more carbon release. Yeah, we don't want. Or that. you can send them to to my. Yeah, account. send them to one 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 one. Four 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 Mikeadelic Studios, Mikeadelic, Colorado. <laughs> Dude, that I want it. We're gonna start our own state. We're gonna start our own city, our own town. That's that's what's gonna happen. I'm down. Yeah. Um, can you do that without having a bunch of people vote? Because like they tried to do that in Northern Colorado and it didn't happen. Where did they try and do it? Northern Colorado wanted to like secede. Really? They wanted apparently like more guns than Southern than the rest of Colorado. I support wanted. secession, a hundred percent. I think why why the fuck not? You know, look, we're not all going to agree. I agree. I agree that we're not going to agree. That's the ticket right there. That's the golden Willy Wonka ticket. Is like the recognition of the fact, the acceptance of the fact that first of all, I don't always agree with myself. So how's how am I gonna how are we gonna force everybody a nation of three hundred and eighteen million plus diverse cultural ethnic background people with beliefs of all kinds to agree on one version of objective reality? Get the fuck out of here! Yeah, it's our attachment to the agree <laughs> that makes us want to pass that on to everyone else. Like they need to know it too because that's what I do, and it's so much a part of me that I need to spread it and let it out. Yeah, but Colorado is dope, you know? I mean, Verde, shout out to Verde. Your weed is bomb. 
Love yes, the cannabis Verde. at Verde. Um, yeah, maybe I'll get a Verde sponsorship. There you go. Why not? Best the best cannabis in the biz, I think. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that Jay made us take a little tangent. Let's get back to question two. What do we got? <laughs> thanks for thanks for being open and honest and transparent to keep me on track because that's the kind of community that we need. We need yes. people that. Well, and your listeners probably are sick of hearing what's going on for the past two minutes. Are you think? I don't know. We can edit this out, Bill. Okay, cool. Yeah, we can say whatever we want. Yo, like, fuck my Joe, listeners. I'm thinking like Joe from Minnesota. He's like vacuuming. He's like, man, fuck this fucking podcast. No, dude. They, these guys, the, the, I love, my audience is the best. I love every everybody that listens to the show. They're the best group of human beings. They're awesome. I'm sure they don't mind us talking about a little bit of uh, the 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 background details. That's that's true. Yeah, it's kind of like a behind the scenes. The tangential like this road. Happened. This is the road that yeah. we're taking now. We're on this yeah. journey. We're having this intense conversation. Now we're high, and we're going in different locations. Yeah. Now let's get back to the <laughs> the PDF. All right. So play along at home. We're going to go through these questions. Okay. The next one was, um, film subject Tristan Harris posits that before artificial intelligence overpowers human strength, it will overpower human weakness. What does he mean by that? In what ways do you think technology has overpowered your own vulnerabilities? How has it, how is it shaping your behaviors day to day? So the first question about human weakness. So, (laughs) so the movie brave new world, uh, there's a thing called Soma and it's basically, control through i guess i'll say the carrot the Uh, carrot on the on the stick yeah it's like the opposite of authoritarian rule it's it's this you know instead of punishment we're going to give you this thing that you love so much uh and that's how we're going to control you yeah we'll be controlled by our we'll be controlled by our pleasures yeah exactly and it's gonna it's gonna excite us and and make us want to do this all the time and you know alcohol is one thing and it's porn and you know there's other things but but yeah technology is so deep that it can embed all those other things within it too and uh and the more it plays on our vulnerabilities of of really wanting things our vulnerabilities of feeling alone our vulnerabilities of feeling not good enough not fulfilled it digs into those weaknesses and it's able to do whatever it wants with us because it plays to them specifically yeah in what ways do you think technology has overpowered your own vulnerabilities yeah uh, how is it empowered empower my own vulnerabilities? I would say overpowered, overpowered. Uh, I often feel like I need to be doing something. And so it gives me something to do instead of allowing me to not have to be doing something. That's probably the biggest one. Yeah, I would say so. I, I recently had a revelation, I believe after a mushroom journey that, that I had sort of tricked myself into believing that the amount of content that I was consuming was, was not uh, like frivolous and it wasn't like just for enjoyment that I was like, I'm, 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 I'm watching informing things. I'm, I'm doing this to educate myself. But I realized that I had also become sort of passive in my consumption of intellectual content, let's just say, you know, so it's like, it's not like I'm watching hours of the Simpsons instead I'm watching hours of like Brett Weinstein and fucking 
Slavov Zizek or you know something like <laughs> who the hell are those people dude they're people man uh, Robert <laughs> Anton sure Wilson okay. um, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. like whoever I'm, I'm listening to at the time uh, but I'm like okay you know so I had the revelation that so where it's overpowering me and my weakness is I'm still sort of being that spectator role. I'm still sort of checking out a little bit because I'm constantly consuming this content and I'm tricking myself into thinking that it's actually making me more productive when it's just enabling the same habits and behaviors that I would have if I was consuming sort of debased, demoralized, like, you know, shallow, vapid content, right? Which I'll, which I'll judge and I'll be like, oh, these fucking people, you know, all they watch is this like shallow hollow nonsense and it's all superficial yet if i'm really like maybe i'm doing something a little bit more empowering to myself by knowledge but the habit is still there so that's i think where i get overpowered and it preys on my weakness to uh consume to be a consumer yeah it's interesting like the we've talked a lot about kind of consuming and how that's like what capitalism's about. That's what this, you know, society is all about. But the act of, at least in your case of like gaining information around those deeper levels also becomes kind of like your own form of overconsumption. Yes. Yeah. I guess that's kind of what our, our whole current societal structure is based on that human vulnerability. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, it's a real issue because it's the trap within the trap. It's the labyrinth. Like you're swimming to the surface. You think you've popped out of the water and you go to take a breath and it's a chamber of gas and you're just like, Oh yeah, you're not, you haven't reached that full total equilibrium with uh, sort of true aligned human reality that you want to, you know, like the, the reality that I feel most nourished in that I want to be participating in. Yeah. It's an awakening to a, to another level of, of, uh, it's an awakening within the confines of the established pre-established rules, borders, boundaries, agreements, uh, of, of, of the dominant reality. Yeah. Yeah. So can we break out of that? How do we, how do we turn that weakness into a strength. How do we? <laughs> <laughs> That's why I, I think it really, re it, it requires, I think, a revolution of the soul. You know, like I, I really think I don't, this is why I hear a lot of talk about systems and isms and programs and things like this. But it really, what you've talked about today is like your choices, the things that you're doing. And I think that that empowers you to have autonomy uh, over reality that you actually get to play a part in shaping the conditions of the reality that you experience. Yeah. Choose. Exactly. Yeah. The word choose. That's the thing. Like attachments hold us away from choosing because they control us. Yeah. And yeah, it's uh Don Miguel Ruiz jr. Uses this question. Are we controlling knowledge or is knowledge controlling us? But see, this is the thing we're so comfortable right now. Even if you're not as comfortable, you're still far better off than a lot of people who are suffering. And that level of, you know, some people are just comfortable just making a little bit of money and just coming home and just checking out and watching whatever's on Netflix. And, you know, so mm -hmm. I think it requires a level of like direct discomfort 
in order to to provoke change because we're too yeah. insulated, we're too somatized. Well, yeah, and why do we need to? Like when when all of our like survival needs have been met, right, change right. change is a threat, and so why would we why would we change? That's right. Yeah, it's the the survival instinct. Mm-hmm only goes so far it's like okay i can you know i can get some delicious food when i want i can sleep with a roof over my head i can have access to the internet watch whatever i want yeah i'm good yeah (laughs) you know and it's it's a uh, i think a form of like mental enslavement you know Mm -hmm. which is which is what one of the dangers that these technologies uh possess yeah absolutely how does the the technology preying upon our weaknesses to overpower us shaping our behaviors day to day? I think it's directing us. It's directing what we buy, who we who we give our attention and energy to, and maybe more importantly, who we're taking it away from. Well, how is it shaping yours, though? Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> Person, speak from personal experience yeah yeah come on man use i statements uh, <laughs> it yeah it takes me away from the present moment sometimes like what i'm present to it takes me away from because there's it gives you access. a new present moment yeah there's access to everything at any moment and every one <laughs> yeah. whereas i used to just have access to whoever the fuck is right in front of right me. yeah dude yeah yeah, that that is such a uh, options or this. I feel like that's such a stoner observation, but it's also an actual deep cut into what is happening. It's like the allure of so many nows. You're just like, oh, what's going on now? What's happening now? What yeah. do they say now? Uh, it's, Especially when the mind's moving fast and can't just be. And you can't yeah, just be. Yeah. yeah, you become this this sort of. Seeker, constant seeker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and nothing's ever good enough, and I need that next hit. Yeah, it's all part of that same soma. Mm. I might want to ha- ask a follow-up question before we get to the next one, but maybe it'll relate. So let's see if it works. So what's wrong with soma? If people are voluntarily choosing to participate, right? Yeah. Is that so? That's their reality then. That's the reality that they choose to participate in, which becomes real by by the investment in that. Yeah. So if it, if it's not if we don't have people, well, we do. See, this is the problem. It's not just Brave New World. We're in a mixture of Brave New World and 1984. Yeah, I know. Like, yeah, it's from both ends. It's we Absolutely. have we have the two. It's it's we definitely have what we're and talking I would say about. It's way better to be in Soma than 1984. Or it's better to be in the brave new world than 1984. So, so that that makes me think. think that makes me think brother. of the well. But that's Soma plus, plus but that's big what I'm. Brother. That's like, what I'm saying. Is dilemma, that right? the choice that we're kind of making though? By not sort of divesting from status quo reality that's dominated by a gang of of people. I think of we criminals. To, yeah, I think we have to risk one to gain control of the other. So it's not worth the risk right now to rebel against the system. It's because bingo is it because the alternative is just like, it's fine. Yeah. I mean, they're not, you know, we're good. 
Yeah, because didn't they even get into that in Brave New World with the uh, the world of like the savages? Well, yeah, exactly. And they make every it's like a race thing, yeah, just yeah. like what we're seeing now is yeah. like these emotional issues that really hit home for us that are so personal because of our experiences growing up and 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 the you know the direct experiences that we've had. It's like those issues were able to really push everybody. They they push us to do things that we wouldn't logically and rationally do mm-hmm. or you know because we're angry, we're upset, we're yeah. sad, we're emotional. And I think when you're when you're highly emotional, you're easily able, you're easily you know able to be moved in whichever direction. Absolutely. is is fueling that fire. Yeah. Yeah, that's 100% it. Uh, so yeah, I guess in itself, there's nothing wrong with Soma. It's when Soma's part of a bigger system that exploits it and makes it to where it's not worth the risk to go against it. Right. Yeah. Well, I wonder if that's sort of the only... Or maybe it's just the case of like a lot don't understand it. And All right. Let's see what they... And it's and it's good enough. And like it's... They're cool with it. And like, that's, that's, that's what that's I'm fine. saying. Like, yeah. You do, you do you. Yeah. 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 Okay. So let's get into... Uh, these are democracy dilemma questions. So maybe something will, because we're sort of venturing into that territory. Yeah. Film subject Justin Rosenstein says, you look over at the other political side and you start to think, how can those people be so stupid? Look, look at all this information that I'm constantly seeing. How are they not seeing the same information? And the answer is, they're not seeing the same information. Do you think it's important for everybody to have the same set of facts? And and I'll, I'll follow yeah. it up with the other questions. Do you... Do you follow people and sources you disagree with? Why or why not? Okay. I think even if everyone had the same set of facts, they would choose which ones fit their narrative. But I think for, I think I've, we've talked a little bit about whatever's easiest, whatever's quickest. This is also another form of technology where your opinion is kind of picked for you. So you don't have to like critically think or choose. And then it becomes, it's a deeper attachment to the identity of that information. And so, um, I don't think it would matter because even when you see all the same things over and over, you could show it to someone else and try to educate them and they're not going to want to hear it. They're still going to hear what they want to hear and they need to see it for themselves. But that doesn't mean seeing all this, I'd say, facts for themselves. I I think it's more about experience. And the more they experience seeing things they don't agree with, the more they resist them. Yeah, the more it confirms them in their belief structure the more it reaffirms them in their belief structure because they're like, oh my God, that person is so off base and so like, I I am superior to them. I am more intelligent. I'm nobler. I'm better. There's, there's a great sense of feeling like you're the good and decent one and that these other people are ruining things for everybody else and if only they could be replaced or get it together. Yeah. I, but I guess, I, I guess from personal experience that that's what the next questions are about, right? Do I read multiple sources? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I try to, but I, I feel like what's interesting, I guess, <laughs> like all of it seems kind of nuts to an extent, but one side seems really fucking nuts in, in like so extreme ways. But I'm also saying that from the perspective of someone that like identifies as politically progressive so i'm assuming they think the same fucking thing about the other side and so therein is the problem even as i'm like trying to consciously think deeply about this i know the implicit bias that i have against stuff that 
um, I don't agree with inherently because of my morals. And it's, it's so much deeper than just this kind of conscious thought. It has to do with kind of how I not rationally think, but like intuitively think it's, it's programmed. And so again, it just plays on that. It plays on our confirmation bias and just shoots us that nonstop. And so that's another reason I had to get off. Like I was, when I was mindlessly scrolling through things, I would see things that would incense me and it would just make me not feel good. And I'm like, why am I doing this to myself? Yeah. I remember in uh, high school and college that it was just, it was just sort of immediately like understood from my upbringing and where I lived and whatever that just Democrats were good and Republicans were bad. That was just the narrative. I knew nothing about politics whatsoever. I didn't know a thing. I couldn't name anything about politics. But all I knew was Democrats are the good people. Like that was sort of, that was just what the narrative. And throughout the years, I started to pay attention more and more to like to politics and political discourse. And it carries a very religious energy to it, you know? Yeah. Or sports teams. Yeah. Yeah. It's the fanaticism. Fanaticism. Yeah. yeah. The highest level of attachment. Right. Anything the opposite is the enemy. And I think that's when you see stuff that confirms that bias, it, that's what stokes hate. And, and that's what takes us out of who we really are deep, deep, deep below that is who we really are. And we're so far from it. That's, that's what I hope more than anything can start to shift back from, but I don't know. Let me ask this question. Is there an incentive for people to get off that are that into it? No, not really. No, there isn't. It's no, I, 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 all right. I, I want to. I want to answer this. Yeah. Uh, do you think it's important for for everyone to have the same set of facts? I no, I don't because I have a, a problem with the premise of the question. Who is the arbiter of truth? Who controls the narrative of what is objectively true? Because there is objective truth, and then there is objective truth that exists to serve particular agendas and incentives. So who gets to determine what is true? So I, I, I don't think it's important for everyone to have the same set of facts. Can I ask a follow-up on that real quick? Yeah. So let's say we'll start with um, the earth, whether it's curved or flat, like whether it's a sphere or it's a flat disc. So objectively, is that true? Is it true that the Earth is a sphere? I don't know. I, I, I haven't done enough research into the subject matter, but there's a growing contingency of people that believe that the Earth is flat. And I have looked at some of the, like some of the core arguments behind it, and they ha- some of them have made me go, hmm, interesting. You know? But I haven't really dug any deeper than that. But I do know that there are theories that, there, that this is we're in a simulation, this is a projected hologram, that we're in this dome thing, that we're, you know, all these kinds of things. I'm willing to entertain the possibility that that's true. Does it serve my interest right now to worry about that? I don't think so. So I'm more willing to just blindly accept the fact that the earth is round because 
I'm more concerned about what the people on the earth are doing here than the like I'm not ready to get to that level yet. We well, haven't entered that really level matter, to the right? game yet. Like, it doesn't have a direct <laughs> impact on unless I'm going to fly off, I don't really, it, you know, mind. It doesn't have a direct impact on the people that are existing in whatever we're in. It doesn't matter what we're in. It, we could be in a zoo, an alien zoo, we can be, you know, in a hologram world, digital, whatever. It doesn't matter. The fact of the matter is that we're in we're in something so let's let's just deal with the game that we're in yeah and so within that game i'll ask another objectively truthful or not that's our game show right here uh the next one is going to be global warming climate change objectively true or false true and false okay yeah there there's the true part of it i'm just going to leave it like this i'm just going to say the true part of it is that it's definitely not good to be destroying the environment and looking at the world as if it's something to be converted into resources, to extract things from, to convert, to make things out of, that it's that it doesn't have a life to it, you know? That's definitely not good. We don't want to be doing that. Uh, and doing that is having an effect on what, the air we breathe, all kinds of things. Uh, the the biodiversity the you know the the temperature so we don't really want that the other the other thing is that the other side of the argument is like look like whatever it doesn't matter like you know we're just gonna we're just gonna do it we're gonna figure it out you know it's not really that bad you know it it views things from the materialist reductionist extraction ca crony capitalist mindset of like we're this is the way of life this is what humans do i mean in do. our lifetimes yeah like that's yeah. that's pretty true yeah so like so to the, to, gonna, to, yeah, to a large portion of the population it's it, it's an untruth but it's not but but it's not to a larger but because it, they hold that belief that it becomes the reality. Yeah, that's exactly it. You know? It's more about, yeah, the glasses we're wearing than what we're looking so at. So we have to say, like, what, what, like, really, what do we, like, Charles Eisenstein posits this question. It's like, what kind of world do we want to adapt to? Do we want to adapt to worlds where we're walking around in oxygen tank suits and that we, everything is simulated, simulated forests and virtual, like, if we want that, then we just keep going with the flow and doing whatever. But if we don't want that, then we have to experience in our hearts the beauty of another kind of way. Yeah, and if we want like pretty things around us, like coral and mountains without burned trees, and yeah, beaches and you know all these things, we could uh, we could just treat it a little nicer. But I just see it as a matter of respect. Yeah, yeah. You know, just respect where you are. Yeah, but that's how you see have, it. Have have reverence Others for. Nature. Others see it as like us being like at the top of everything and everything is here for us to use it. Right. But like you said, you, you we're never going to be able to convince those people with all the no. facts, all yeah, the yeah, evidence. Yeah, the facts don't matter. All the logic, all the rationale, all the reasoning. You have to feel it in right. your heart. You yeah. have to want it. And Maybe a different way to ask that question is how is seeing your own set of facts harmful? Well, no, here's, I, I here, think it's, here, I'm going to, I'm going to, there's a little, there's I, a nuance. There. I, I, th I think I have something here. Yeah. It's, 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 it's like, how important is it for everybody to, to, to have access to, uh, the same set of facts? So for example, with the problem with the mainstream media, you know, the, the talk of fake news doesn't just happen on the internet. It happens the mainstream media are the main perpetrators. And when I say mainstream, I don't believe that they're mainstream anymore. I believe that the media has moved more online. What I, I'll call them like the establishment media or whatever, you know, but, but they have a vested interest. They have people that they need to make money for. 
and, and perform in particular ways. So you're not going to get just the set of facts, like whatever the, the happenings of the day, the truth of the happenings of the day. I would imagine that to be like a news station that, you know, runs 24 seven that has a diverse staff of, of people reporting in all areas of reality everything that they believe to be going on and just presenting it to people and just being like, Hey, this is all the shit that's fucking happening. You like, like the, the slogan that they bastardize, you decide we report, you decide. It's like, no, you decide and report. Yeah. You decide you report. Yeah. Cause it's, Noam Chomsky calls it the, the the agenda setting media. And I like that term because that's what they are. They set the agenda. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like, I guess that's beyond the facts. It's, yeah, it's very rare that we get, you know, the term like fact, it's very rare. We get actual facts. We get mostly opinions with some facts that were used to form those opinions, or maybe it's just a lot of opinions used to form other opinions. Yeah. By the same, the owner, like, you know, there's, there's this clip that I played, I put on my Instagram. It's like, 250 different news broadcasts all repeating the exact oh, same I've script yeah. because they're owned by, you know, the w- news companies are owned by like three people, like Rupert Murdoch. Owns like, yeah, hundreds yeah. of stations. There's like, yeah. So it's, here's what you're going to say. Here's the other thing I'll say about this shit is that it's, in, it's, it, it's increasingly more difficult for people to know everything that's happening because there's so much shit that's happening that you can't keep, it all in your mind, you'll go crazy and it doesn't help you. It doesn't benefit for, from you for, uh, it doesn't benefit you. So really the only solution is to sort of wake up to your power within and conduct your, your life on your own terms and your own means and find your own morals and virtues and, and things like that. And really decondition, deprogram yourself from the external messaging systems mm-hmm. because they're going to mold us and shape us in one way or another, but it's not us. It's not going to be us. And we're the only ones that can determine what the facts are and how we want to live our lives. Good question. Do you follow people and sources you disagree with? Why or why not? Yes, I do. I mean, sometimes I wouldn't say I follow them. I, I occasionally look at them, but not, not a ton. I look at way less facts and news and such than I used to. I used to be like really into it and, I kind of got sucked into the vortex and it kind of consumed me. And now I read more books and I guess I gain new sources of knowledge than I used to. And so um, that's why I don't really follow many, you know, of, of different types of facts or those that I disagree with. Cause I don't follow a ton that I agree with either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. I, I do. Uh, and it's difficult, man. It's challenging. Mm-hmm. It's really, really challenging. So I, I feel like I'm I'm ready to enter the phase now where I'm just reading the things that I want to read and looking at things that I want to look at. Um, is sort of developing like a, a thesis for my point of attention, and it's difficult to read things that that I would disagree with or people that I disagree with and see things like um, because you start to understand the truth that lies within their arguments. You start to see their rationale, you know, and it's like and then and for even for the people that are far out wacky conspiracy people, you see the 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 search, the desire, the the yearning for some kind of connection and meaning and truth, you know, and and what they're like and what they're looking for. 
So it, it makes you, I think, sympathize with, with the other side too, which is good because then you can have more of a rational conversation with it that's not charged by emotion and figure out that like, wow, we're all like good and decent human beings. We just have some disagreements and it's not the end of the world. Like Daryl Davis in that documentary, Accidental Courtesy, where he convinces uh, KKK members to disrobe, he was driven by this question, how can you hate me if you don't even know who I am? You know, so he's like, look, I want to get sit down with these people and get to know them. And becomes, we become friends and they, they change their ways over time. And I think that's, that's the only way. So that's why I, I look at uh, people that I disagree with. Yeah, I love that. Good on you. That's awesome. But I also... Great, great explanation why, too. I, I completely agree with that, that the only way we can grow is by truly listening to understand others instead of needing to like respond or be right or be better than, uh, yeah. I think it makes it difficult for people to understand me because if, if I take on a coloring of a particular kind of framework that I'm exploring, I, people automatically assume that I'm like, uh, you know, a truther or like a, right wing or like a socialist or whatever it is. And it's like, I really am just exploring and being open to all possibilities because that's where all people lie. And if we can have allies in every area, then it's more common ground. No, you have to pick one. You have to be on a team, Mike. Fuck. <laughs> you will fight and die for our team. Pick that's a team, hate the others. That is, yeah. I mean, you 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 can't you can't send people overseas to fight and die. You can't you can't make people commit aggressive acts of violence on other people just because they're wearing a uniform and a badge and they have a gun and they have a, a piece of paper that tells them that they have the right to do X, Y, and Z. You can't convince people to do that unless you rah rah shishkumba. Our team, our side, we're better. They're they're not. Get them. Yeah. Every day. Get them. Pledge allegiance. Pledge allegiance, motherfucker. Yeah, pledge allegiance to fight. There's this great, uh, I think I said this in the last podcast, but I'll bring it up again because there's this great, um, this guy Tom Woods makes an amazing uh, like analogy of like, imagine if it wasn't America and the government that we had to pledge allegiance to. Imagine if it was Walmart, right? Like, so all your kids went to school and it was a Walmart school and they had pictures of the wall, all the Walmart CEOs and this CEO never told a lie and this one gave everyone fair wages and prices and you know, you had to pledge allegiance to Walmart every day. Like, th just think about how insane that would be, right? And that's pretty much what we do. What we do is by by attaching to a nation, a party, an identity, we pledge, we worship, we sacrifice ourselves to some kind of. Yeah, it's it's really not far off. I love. That. <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I I keep just during this current uh presidency and like with that example you brought up i keep thinking of the movie idiocracy where it like just becomes this big corporate state with uh the president uh yeah, Hec like, hector camacho macho hector camacho, camacho gatorade yeah. camacho yes. yeah and he comes out and he's like shut the fuck up yeah. in the senate <laughs> yeah and everybody's like he's like all right motherfuckers he's got a machine gun he's yeah. riding on a monster truck yeah yeah i watched that movie uh, and i thought it was hilarious and then and then i ate some shrooms and I saw it and I was like, this is not funny at all. This right. is real life. Yeah. Like this is, this is the 
degraded, you know, shallow, vapid, mainstream pop culture representation that we've really become. That's why we have the president that we have is yeah. he is that showman, that trickster. He's the magician tricking everybody. And we want to be tricked because we want to be angry because we want to fucking have a villain to fight against something because yeah. we have to f- develop meaning. Anyway, I can go on and on and on about this, but let's get on to the next question. Yeah, we got. All right. So uh, what film subjects... Aza Raskin and Renee DeRetes has written that there's a difference between freedom of speech and freedom of reach. What do you think they mean by that? Freedom of speech and freedom of reach. So I guess the way I'm interpreting that is that we have a freedom to say whatever we want. Uh, and I guess the freedom of reach is to whoever, and that gives us the ability to connect with them in any by any means necessary? I don't know. I, I don't. I guess I don't really understand it fully. I, I what they mean by I, yeah. I, I think what they mean is that you have freedom of speech, but if you have a massive reach, then that freedom of speech needs to be curtailed because uh, I see. What you know, saying. because you have an effect on on millions of people. Mm-hmm. So, for for example, right now, Spotify. Joe Rogan just signed a signed a hundred million dollar deal with Spotify to go over to them exclusively. And Spotify employees are like, first of all, some of his episodes have been removed from from the catalog and not imported over. So people are furious about that. Now, Spotify employees are threatening to like strike if they're not allowed to censor Joe Rogan's episodes and decide which ones can be done and have like editing control over it. So there the argument is Joe Rogan has a a powerful uh, influence and reach. You know, he gets millions and millions of people that he broadcasts to. So he should be regulated in some kind of way. Yeah, free speech, but you know, not when you have a massive audience. So I disagree with that. I think that people should be able to say whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want, and that we should have common courtesy and decency and respect and honor, you know, ourselves to stand within our integrities in order to honor that. And, you know, whoever decides to go to the people that are saying the things that they like, go there. I agree. Yeah. Say whatever you want. People can either jump on board or reject it. That's their choice. But I mean, in his situation, it sounds like he probably should have read the contract. Yeah. When you, when <laughs> you take a hundred million dollars, they probably could do whatever the fuck they want with your, with the, so, with the social dilemma, what it does is it tells people they're being attacked. Yeah. They're, you're the victims. You're being preyed upon. So that somebody else needs to, to, to do something, you know, and I know that they suggested some things in the film that we could do, too. But it's like, you know, that the that really needs to be the message that's focused on more. Yeah. Yeah. That's what makes the Internet a tool that enables such amazing types of connection that never would have happened otherwise. And that's something that this pandemic kind of opened up is. Uh, if we're not focused, if we're not focused on physical, we miss a lot of that kind of energy being in the same space, but there's always a trade-off and the trade-off is you're only serving by proximity, whereas you can serve and find a tribe and create community and, and really connect with people because of the ability to have full reach anywhere in this flat world. (laughs) Yeah. 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 (laughs) Anywhere on this plane. (laughs) Um, (laughs) on this floating disc. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 and I think that the, the sort of like calls to censor and ban, you know, really don't effectively 
work. Like they don't, they don't solve the issue. They don't solve the problem because when you, when you do that, you essentially limit reality and we don't want the internet to go the way of television where it's just these programs that are on programs, these, these shows that are on and, um, you know, there's commercials in between and, you know, it's right, highly regulated. You can't say certain words, can't say certain things, can't show certain things. It's like, we don't want the internet to be that seven stations, you know? But yeah, like talk about social media, we can't have nipples on Instagram or Facebook. Yeah, so it's someone's probably going to you let a nipple come, the next thing you're going to have soft core porn and then you're going to want to show everything and But maybe maybe porn everywhere. So it's like maybe we should. I don't know. That's what I'm saying. Maybe yeah, we should. Maybe we should just live this, in the truth of what we are yeah. rather than trying to hide it because when we hide the truth of who we are, it manifests in these sort of like hyper um, aggressive situations or abusive situations, yeah. you know, limit, you can't tell kids they can't drink until they're 21. You get more binge drinking. You, well, the difference there that I was making, I guess was, I guess a company choosing to do something like Spotify or Facebook to censor something versus it just being this free thing. I guess that's the distinction. Like the internet itself can't become this branded thing that has shareholders. Cause then it's going to need to uphold some, certain standard and then it's going to be able to be that's what it's becoming though yeah little by little i know and that's that's the challenge for the public i guess is the distinction Mm -hmm. yeah so should all or any ideas be amplified by the algorithms should the same standards be used for individuals as public figures or advertisers who should decide yeah i guess that's the problem that second question individuals advertisers advertisers have thousands millions billions lots of dollars and again that's what it's all about and so they're the ones that are going to be able to use that information to manipulate and and get what they want but like what if we as individuals had that power like we could find like we could find potentially best friends soulmates like just on our own by using this data and pinpointing specific people so maybe what we have to start doing is build communities yeah curated cooperatives uh, that function as like information, news, thought platforms. And um, yeah. But uh, I guess that's what some plat- some things are doing. Like, I don't know. Do you use psychographics to like reach more? No, of, I don't do any more of, of these amazing best listeners in the world. No, I, I haven't spent a dime on social media advertising mainly because I'm banned. Okay, so, cool. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm banned. Yeah, I'm banned. So I can't I can't do anything. But yeah, I think that it, it's. Everything that the the internet represents is free and open. The internet represents free, open connectivity, you know? So I think anything that has, that doesn't embody those ideas shouldn't be, you know, we should not allow them to be in operation. Like, so, yeah, I think, I think it has to be baked in with those principles because then it's, it's inherently not going to engage in like favoring certain people or trying to make a, a, a profit, right? Well, what about this? According to like government rules, our bodies aren't even free and open. Like we're not even sovereign to do everything we want with our bodies. So why would we be able to do that within this? What do you mean? Yeah. Well, yeah, well, no, I mean, but we should be. No, I agree. But yeah. I'm saying like, so that that's we, what I'm saying. That's 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 the answer like, to my of question. Of course, there like I I feel it's inevitable that there's going to be more and more type of regulation. Of course, that, that's yeah. what's happening. Yeah, yeah, that's literally what's happening right now. Is like 
it's being expedited. Right. And, you know, and people are going to be fine with it. The majority yeah. of people are going to be fine because they're going to want more security. They're going to want more safety. So maybe the answer is just to detach anyway. <clears throat> I mean, just not use it as much. And in the meantime, figure out other ways to achieve the same ends. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm just saying that there has to be a a disruption to the order of things. You know, there has to be a, uh, there has to be alternatives that, that are appealing enough to be lying around when that disruption occurs Mm -hmm. that people can go, Oh, okay, cool. Like we, we, Oh shit. Like we don't have to do things either this way or that way. There's like a bunch of other ways that we can do things. And when more and more people start seeing that, then I think that that sort of like mentality just gets baked into the way that people do things. Right. So for example, like when we went to Sonic bloom music festival, there's a certain vibe and energy there that's baked in, to the, to that scene. There's a certain kind of understanding that it's like, we're all here for the same thing. And, you know, we're all like enjoying ourselves. And so there's like a different level of respect that happens, I think, and congregation and, you know, communication. And when you impose like these strict restrictions and rules and security and all this kind of stuff, it, it, it has an effect on how people participate in that environment, you know? Um, but when we're, when we're all kind of like just able to be like, yeah, this is, this is cool. Like, I don't want to like prey on people. I don't want to fucking, you know, take advantage of people because I'm trying to make a buck to survive. But like, Hey, let's all like collaborate and communicate and have fun competitions. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Let's make that happen. Let's make it happen. You heard it here first folks. We're making it happen. Okay. So I think we answered all those questions. So then we go to the discrimination dilemma discussion questions. Should we trust an algorithm to make major decisions such as employment, financial, or housing outcomes, as well as what information we see? No, because those are based on inputs that are based on an inequitable system built on racism and oppression. I mean, then it becomes like this gamified, I don't know, I just keep thinking of Black Mirror and what what they fucking do in China where they do those social rating systems. Uh, No, no, that's terrible. Right. So your answer ties in sort of to the next portion of the question. Is it possible for algorithms to be objective when they were written by humans, mostly white upper class Americans in Silicon Valley who are shaped by their own biases and experience? (laughs) I mean, our laws are written by upper class white males and technology, too. I mean, I guess the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So, yeah, I guess anything that involves not more white males with money and power. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, I I just, whatever we're doing, that'd be cool. I just look at it more as like this sort of puritanical European sort of dominator culture mentality, you know, like colonization, uh, the colonization mentality. Yeah. It's just, uh, we, when we, you know, when we had the revolution against the British to form a new way of life here, we just became a new them. I think that those who wield great power have great responsibility, you know, as the Spider-Man quote goes, though, you know, it, it's with, with great power comes great responsibility and with great responsibility comes great power. As Mark yeah. Manson said in the subtle art of not giving a fuck. And I think they would say their responsibility is to their shareholders. Right. Well, th- that's, that's true because we currently only exist in one dominant game you know there's a there's one dominant set of game rules that says that you 
have to have money to exist in the world. But there's a diverse array of different ways that we can experiment with what yeah. it means to be living in, in, a, in, a, in an environment that we exchange or that we live in a spirit of, of a gift economy yeah. or something like that, right? There's, I feel like there's a, there should be a second half of that sentence that says, like, you must get money to exist. There should be a, but if you only focus on money, you will no longer exist. Sure, that can be important, but... Yeah, the responsibility needs to be more broad, whether it is environmentally, socially, digitally. Yeah, I mean, and it just boils down to the fact that it's like we can't impose, we can't really impose our will to make people obey a, a particular kind of moral code because there's going to be people that go, well, fuck that. I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to get around that. And I think that really, you know, back to like what we've been talking about for this whole podcast is that it has to come from within. There has to be a change that occurs from within the person, something that directly impacts their life on a daily basis where they feel like, okay, I need to do, I need yeah. to do good. Yeah, I need choose, to be responsible. Yeah. Be responsible. Make choices that serve yeah. what you want. Right. Yeah. Be the change. Are there ways that you, that the use of your online data might contribute to institutions discriminating against you? How might this kind of behavior disappropriately impact marginalized communities? Are there ways that the use of your online data might contribute to institutions discriminating against you? I don't think that's appropriate for me as a How might this kind of behavior disproportionately impact white male. marginalized communities? I'm not a marginalized community. Well, I would say that we're all marginalized communities of our, the individual is the largest marginalized community. Do you think algorithms that prioritize outrageous and divisive content amplify hate towards minority groups? What should be done? Yeah, but I, I mean, I think they also amplify hate. And I think they amplify hate everywhere. But yeah, I mean, like we said before, they're kind of like, preying on how we identify with things and then they're stoking that and it's getting us to then become fanatics about something that then makes us vilify the other side whatever that is uh yeah absolutely yeah i think that uh outrageous and divisive content amplifies hate towards anybody that it's like that where's the minority groups like within all of us there's my there's minority I, I guess i would say it like there's parts of ourselves that are sort of like oppressed within within ourselves right so those areas are more vulnerable to i think being bullied being attacked within yeah. who we are well, and 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 this content will prey upon those areas because of what we talked about how the algorithms are organized like earlier that question about our weaknesses so in that sense i do feel that that is you know what is being done i think it's why um why poor white people um, are more racist than rich white people they're being preyed on kind of their their social status is being preyed on to say, you know, hey, you can still be above these people, so treat them. Well, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I would agree with that general sort of labeling that poor people are more racist than rich people. No, I'm saying it's there's there's studies show that lower income white people have more 
tendency towards preferring their own race. There's ways it was worded or whatever. Yeah, yeah, so, no, but I, but I no doubt, ag- that, like, I no doubt level agree with that. I think their ability or their kind of like vilifying of another race. I think that I honestly think that I've met a lot of good people that are probably conservative or Republican or whatever, and and just you know they they it's like I think the labeling like the earlier when I said like I didn't know what it, anything about politics like I just know new Democrat good Republican bad like yeah, I think yeah. it's just people are likely to just lump them like in and just be like oh these backwards hick racist people but. You know, that's a dangerous thing to do because all of a sudden you keep calling them that and then they just become that with the hate towards against you for calling them that, you know, and it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. I actually think rich people are probably more prone to being racist because and I'm talking about like really wealthy elite people Mm -hmm. because, you know, that they the same sort of thing happens. You insulate yourself, you form an in group, you have a particular set of beliefs, you have money and power and you, you know, so, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I just think that, uh, that the algorithm, the algorithms definitely prioritize that stuff because that's the stuff that turns on all of our emotions. And that's the stuff that keeps us feeding it energy and with time and attention. Well, I guess what I meant in a more nuanced way by that was, someone rich would be more insulated and not be near some near other people that might be different than them. That if they feel bad about their own situation, that if that is stoked, they would take it out on someone that might be different from them because they're there because they're fighting for survival. Um, I think it's, it's all over the the place. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, that vulnerability is that insecurity. Mm Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, everyone has insecurities, right? But they're much more related to survival at lower income levels. Yeah. All right. I think there's uh, some questions for families and students and teachers, but uh, I think I'm ready to, to maybe wrap this one up. That sounds good. What do you think? Yeah. All right, cool. So check this out on the social dilemma and, and the arguments that they raise. You know, I think there's a tendency for a documentary like this to come along and use a lot of the tactics that um, of, of fear and, and triggering emotional response, right? Like when you watch the social dilemma, I think that it, it's there to elicit a certain a particular emotion. Um, and you know, I'd say like with, with everything, look at it with a critical lens, look at with, and, you know, really inspect the, the ideas behind what they're, you know, commenting on and suggesting, because some of it's great. And some of it is, um, you know, to be discussed as Bill and I have, have just done. So hope you guys enjoyed that. And Bill. Yeah, this is Bill Asibin saying, uh, (laughs) have a good night, everybody. Be ill. That should be a rap name. Be ill. Be ill. All right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. We're going to do some freestyling now. Peace.
Yeah. Be the change. Um, are there ways that you, that the use of your online data might contribute to institutions discriminating against you? How might this kind of behavior disappropriately impact marginalized communities? Are there ways that use your online data? Oh, are there ways that the use of your online data might contribute to institutions discriminating against you? I don't think that's appropriate for me as a. How might this kind of behavior disproportionately impact white male. marginalized communities? I'm not a marginalized community. Well, I would say that we're all marginalized communities of our, the individual is the largest marginalized community. Do you think algorithms that prioritize outrageous and divisive content amplify hate towards minority groups, which should be done? Yeah, but I, I mean, I think they also amplify hate. And I think they amplify hate everywhere, but yeah, I mean, like we said before, they're kind of like preying on our, uh, I think they're preying on how we identify with things and then they're stoking that and it's getting us to then become fanatics about something that then makes us vilify the other side, whatever that is. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that, uh, outrageous and divisive content amplifies hate towards anybody that it's like that. Where's the minority groups like within all of us, there's my, there's minority. I, I guess I would say it like there's parts of ourselves that are sort of like oppressed within, within ourselves. Right. So those areas are more vulnerable to I think being bullied, being attacked within yeah. who we are. Well, and why, and you know. and this content will prey upon those areas because of what we talked about how the algorithms are organized, like earlier that question about our weaknesses. So in that sense I do feel that that is, you know, what is being done. I think it's why um why poor white people um uh, are more racist than rich white people they're being preyed on kind of their their social status is being preyed on to say you know hey you can still be above these people so treat them well i i don't know i i don't know if i would agree with that general sort of labeling that poor people are more racist than rich people no i'm saying it's there's there's studies show that lower income white people have more tendency towards preferring their own race there's ways it was worded or whatever yeah yeah no but i but i no doubt that, like, i no doubt level agree with that i think their ability or they're kind of like vilifying of another race i think that i honestly think that i've met a lot of good people that are probably conservative or republican or whatever and and just you know they they it's like i think the labeling like the Earlier, when I said like I didn't know what it, anything about politics, like I just know new Democrat good, Republican bad. Like yeah, I think yeah. it's just people are likely to just lump them like in and just be like, oh, these backwards hick racist people. But 
you know, that's a dangerous thing to do because all of a sudden you keep calling them that and then they just become that with the hate towards against you for calling them that, you know, and it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. I actually think rich people are probably more prone to being racist because, and I'm talking about like really wealthy elite people Mm -hmm. because, you know, that they, the same sort of thing happens. You insulate yourself, you form an in group, you have a particular set of beliefs, you have money and power and you, you know, so, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I just think that, uh, that the algorithm, the algorithms definitely prioritize that stuff because that's the stuff that turns on all of our emotions. And that's the stuff that keeps us feeding it energy and with time and attention. Well, I guess what I meant in a more nuanced way by that was, someone rich would be more insulated and not be near some near other people that might be different than them. That if they feel bad about their own situation, that if that is stoked, they would take it out on someone that might be different from them because they're there because they're fighting for survival. Um, I think it's, it's all over the the place. yeah. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, that vulnerability is that insecurity and, And yeah, I mean, everyone has insecurities, right? But they're much more related to survival at lower income levels. Yeah. All right. I think there's uh, some questions for families and students and teachers, but uh, I think I'm ready to, to maybe wrap this one up. That sounds good. What do you think? Yeah. All right, cool. So yeah, check this out on the social dilemma and, and the arguments that they raise. You know, I think there's a tendency for a documentary like this to come along and use a lot of the tactics that, um, of, of fear and, and triggering emotional response, right? Like when you watch the social dilemma, I think that it, it's there to an elicit a certain, a particular emotion. Um, and, you know, I, I'd say like with, with everything, look at it with a critical lens, look at it with, and, you know, really inspect the, the ideas behind what they're, you know, commenting on and suggesting because some of it's great and some of it is, um, you know, to be discussed as Bill and I have, have just done. So hope you guys like that episode. If you want to be involved in the conversation, I am going to be doing Zoom calls with my Patreon people. Patreon people assemble. The Mycadelic Inner Sanctum is going to be having more group discussion calls, Q&A things. So if you want to be a part of that, go to Mike, uh, go to patreon.com slash Mike Brank, B-R-A-N-C. Become a patron for $5 a month. You get access to all this kind of stuff that we're going to be doing there. Bonus episodes, group call, chats, the Discord, Inner Sanctum, chat group, uh, and more freebies, stickers, and, and things like that. So uh, just think about doing that. It's going to be awesome. I'm really psyched to be facilitating more discussions with people. want to get you guys involved in the conversation. If you need new underwear and you're sick of the crap that's out there and you want something super dope, really awesome, really comfortable from a, a company that supports psychedelics, that supports podcasts, go to sheathunderwear.com, put in the code Mikeadelic, and you get 20% off site-wide. That's sheathunderwear.com, code Mikeadelic for 20% off. Check out studentloantutor.com. Go to studentloantutor.com, request a free consultation, and tell them that Mikeadelic sent you, Mike Brancatelli sent you, and much love to all you guys. Uh, Show your support any way that you can in helping this one-man show, independent podcast, in a sea of corporatized censorship media. Uh, 
do whatever you can. Tell people about it if you like it. Send me feedback. Ask me questions. Find me on Instagram and, and Facebook and everywhere. Mikeadelic underscore podcast on Instagram. And email me, mikeadelicpod at gmail.com. Love hearing from you guys. Love, love hearing from you guys. Love all of you beautiful people that support the show in whichever way you can. Leave a five-star rating and review at Apple Podcasts. Much love. Much love. Much love to you all. Peace.